you know, this is Manchester United, Boot Veghorst is being sold, and then you go online and, and it seems to be like, this is a good thing. You're like, it's not. Please stop telling me this is a good thing. It's not. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. OTB AM. With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. Good morning to you. It's uh, Friday. It's OTB AM. It is Adrian here. It's Cullum over there and it's Shane over there. Morning to you, folks. Good morning. Action, Adrian. Action. Action. And yeah. we're ready to go. We were we were just having a 20-minute uh, production conversation as to when exactly was the right moment to start now with the new order. Anyway, people don't care about that. Good morning to you, wherever it is you're at this morning. And good morning to you, lads. Uh, how's the forum? Uh, flying it. Absolutely flying it. I, I said to myself before we came on air, I'm not going to mention the jumper. I'm not going to mention the jumper. I'm not going to mention the jumper. But Colm, it's... it's hey, uh, hey. <laughs> oh, this is a hand and special at this stage. It's very it's, um, warm. I'd like one hand and special, please. And that's what comes. Adrian, I think you're just jealous of it. I don't like... Uh, I, I'm not exactly a fashionista, and I don't really like having to go with you about your, your clothes, but it's just not good. What? Someone who isn't a fashionista a would not um, show up in that jumper, Adrian. Come on, give yourself some credit. It's a smart credits. jumper. Give yourself some no, credit. Lovely give yourself some credit. This style. is lovely. It's like the same Aaron, jumper. You could be in a cup of soup, Ed. You're a baby, you're, Adrian might be a baby boomer, you see. He doesn't, doesn't get the fashion. He just doesn't, <laughs> baby he doesn't get into the kids. But you wearing that saying that I don't get fashion is certainly something that Folks, needs to please, be tipped up. Folks, please, please, someone back me up. I've had a, I've had a, tough, see, week. I've had a tough week of being... Uh, yeah, you, you have. And I'm, do you know what? I'm very proud of you this week because you stuck to your guns. When everyone was against you, you stuck to your guns and you kept going with this ridiculous comparison yeah, of fair yeah. play. <laughs> I'm very proud of you. <laughs> you do ridiculous. Um, I'm feeling... I've, I've had a tough week myself. I started Zwifting. What the hell is that? Oh, yeah. started swifting I saw you earlier. calling it. Like, <laughs> if anyone fancies a right. <laughs> earlier this week, I started swifting. What is swifting? Um, what is yes, swifting, yeah. Uh, it's, it was the COVID craze where people couldn't leave the house and so everybody got a turbo uh, bike into their house and started turbo biking. Oh, the indoor uh, stationary yeah, yeah, yeah. bike. You take the back wheel off your bike and you stick it up on top of the swift oh, and away you go. You're one of them now. Lycra. Do you wear the Lycra in the house? No, I haven't got around to that just yet, but I'm sure it's probably only a matter of time. It's it's very handy, I must say. Like it's sort of yeah, it actually stays there. It's well, you're 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 gonna be cycling as fast as you can, but it, the bike actually doesn't move. Which no, is pretty, which is pretty handy. <laughs> <laughs> Are you taking the piss now? Or is that <laughs> <laughs> what's happening? What's going on? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, it is very handy. I find it at my stage of life with three small kids at home and like not a great ability to. I want when I want to be able to exercise, I don't have to have a huge big rigmarole yeah. of organising stuff. This is not. Uh, it sounds like an ad or that I've been paid for this and I've not. But it's. Um, Although all freebies are welcome, yeah. um, having said that, it's very handy because there's no rigmarole. <coughs> I don't need to get involved with all your lycra stuff. I can just have the fresh air, though, Adrian. You're missing. Out I can the open the window air. beside me and like, get all that. The minute you get all the fresh air you need, the wind in your face. I don't know. During the summer, I do think maybe during the summer um, that it might get a bit more. Time. And when I put it up online, did somebody come back to because the interface is so cool. So you have yourself in the middle of a race, and of course, I did the classic. Uh, uh, I'm going to say Irish thing, certainly me thing, where I was like, I'm just going to go out now and have an easy sort of a, you know, 15, 20 minute, because I hadn't done before, so I'll have a bit of a go at this, sort of yeah. ease myself into it. And so I entered into it. You can enter into races, so, you know, it comes up and it says all... Oh, you have a screen in front of you? Yeah, exactly. Ah, right. uh, mirror onto your TV. Okay. And it says like, you know, this race is starting in five minutes, you know, you should, uh, if, if you want to jump on this one, or so, so I did that. Didn't know some other category I was getting into. And then 
uh, even though I haven't really done much exercise in about 10 years, uh, I found myself a few minutes into this thing going flat out yeah, to yeah. catch uh, somebody called H. Barnes, who was a minute ahead of me. It might have been Harvey, Harvey Barnes. Barnes yeah. Harvey Barnes. For sure. I, re- I reeled him in. That's pretty took, good. It was eight laps, five laps it took, and I reeled him in, and I was like flat to the mat, like this is so stupid, like flat to the mat going after this guy to reel him in. I got past him, and the second I got past him, I just lost all <laughs> motivation and gone. enthusiasm. I was yeah. like, all right, Harvey, you go now, you go, take this thing to the line. <laughs> so you, are you racing other human beings? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you could you could jump on. If I had any friends, I could jump on with friends. And, if I had any uh, friends. I could <laughs> jump on with friends and race with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the last time I saw you um, engage in any sporting activity was circa January 2020 when there was an indoor football match between off-the-ball heads oh, yeah, yeah. with uh, Brian Kerr's managers John one, uh, one, and John Giles' manager of the other. Was before that. that was, it was, I think it was then. I, oh, actually, oh, you might be right. It was 2019, maybe. And anyway, uh, it was live-streamed, so everybody could enjoy this. People might remember it. And there was one point I was watching, and this guy picks up the ball at left-back, very much right-footed, whoever this was, mm. right? and he was turning back inside. And then he does a Cruyff turn to skin mm. I think it was who was that Nathan, Nathan Murphy That's, got skinned yeah. and then he unfortunately for this gentleman beside me here to my left he passed uh, what I would describe as a hospital pass into uh, midfield that's yeah. and then ruined your five turn do you want to discuss there? Uh, no no all of that is accurate up to the last bit where I played a lovely deaf ball into the middle of the park deft. and one of my colleagues was running onto it and made an absolute uh, hames of it and let, let them move down it was outside of your right foot you weren't looking things, you know these you highlight reels that they show of class moves and class players yeah. and they and stop they, it before the moment before yeah, yeah, yeah. These, that's what they it's like in soccer aim on the showboat it was like what do you do afterwards yeah, they never showed. Yeah. Yeah. now tell me this are you a skillful footballer um, no, not really. No, 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 no. no, no. Uh, I know by the eyes. No, people no, can't no, no. actually see the what the actually, truth. Is no, 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 no. I wouldn't it's be. A telepathic I wouldn't be. No, no, I, wouldn't be, I can't wouldn't. remember who did Brian Kerr and John Giles name as man of the match in that game again. It wasn't me. Straight onto my CV that went. No. Straight onto the LinkedIn profile that evening. Anyway, look, like the monorail episodes, it was like, oh, clearly it's you. Yeah, In The Simpsons. And it was like, was that why you were man of the match? Or did they actually really think that you were the best player? I played well. I had a good game. Yeah, a decent game. That's good. Yeah, yeah. It's a shame, shoehorning him. He doesn't mind to be you would say. And to be fair, you are a good footballer, so that's... Oh, thank you, Adrian. Right, I wanted to mention that at the start. I'm sort of hobbling around. It's Friday the 13th as well, so... That's Hopefully true. All, touch wood, all goes well. Um, Chelsea last night, and uh, the oh, ever unfortunate Graham Potter. Uh, he just can't catch a break, the guy, oh. um, or a win. And uh, he was at six points, six points from the last nine Premier League games, yeah. something along those lines. Uh, not great to say the least. And uh, the whole Joe Felix stuff. Colin was texting the group last night saying, "Oh, Joe Felix, what a, this is guys unbelievable. He's, Chelsea are going to win the Premier League." And then about five minutes later. Uh, live score pops up. His second Chelsea red card ever. Recorded. Second only. Got one for Atletico as well. Phil was sending me this morning. Um, such a shame for him, but you know, hilarious for everybody else. Like, because now he's he's going to miss three games. It will find him. You know, nice little time to settle in London now. Find a gaff. You know, see a few bars. Nice, nice little time off for himself. Uh, for, but for 58 minutes, I thought he was like by far the best player in the pitch. It was as if they plunked a world class player into a, a team full of you know handy enough players, but not great. Even the within the first two minutes. Lovely nutmeg in the right-hand side of the penalty area. Lovely pass into the box. And then there was a moment in the start of the second half, I'd say literally minutes before he got sent off. And inexplicably, BT Sport didn't show replay at any point of it, but it was so beautiful. He had his back to goal. Uh, it was a kind of daisy-cutter pass to him, so difficult to control. And just one touch, flick between the legs to Megs, his marker, and kept him going with the ball. Just like a class above. Had that like lovely style where... 
brilliantly skillful players have of kind of floating rather than running and you just can't catch the guy and he yeah. kept them winning free kicks in the middle of the pitch um, he's very foulable but he, he's confidence personified Like he, as soon as he gets the ball you're like oh this guy this, he, he, knows he's, he knows what he's about if he never plays for Chelsea again I would deem him as a success <laughs> based on that one game but look it was, it was literally this time last week exactly that Shane, Yumi and Ger were talking about Graham Potter and they had just lost narrowly 1-0 at home to Manchester City in the Thursday night Premier League game, mm. the Riyad Mahrez goal. But City were well warranted their victory. And oh. we were saying... I, Sorry, go on. I thought they were, I, I thought they were much better That's in the second half. I thought they were un, much better. Un, uh, unfair. That's fair enough, but I thought they were much Since better. Since then, they've lost 4-0 to City in the Cup. So, for, and we, we were talking about... And we were like, oh, no, he'll, you know, he'll step. I, there's, there's something in me that I think... I don't think he's going to be manager next season. But is, is I it... I can't see it. And I do think you're... Uh, your snaps is that uh, City Chelsea game is very unfair. I actually thought Chelsea could have won that game. Uh, I thought that City were much better in the second handily, half, but they could much, easily much have better. won the game. I thought they were much better in the second half. Um, but sorry, but I do agree with your point that Chelsea aren't actually playing too badly at times because against Fulham last night they were good yeah. for large chunks of the game. But obviously people see the results like this is a complete disaster for Fulham. And, and so obviously the conversation started about whether. Sorry, the conversations continue about whether Graham Potter should be uh, should be in charge or not. And like, look at it, I don't know. They'll uh, it's there is a point where obviously it may reflect very badly on the entire club if they end up getting rid of him. And maybe they got rid, as one of our YouTube commenters said this morning, maybe they got rid of the previous guy, um, Ian. Awful stuff for Chelsea. Two clubs moved on too fast. Maybe they got rid of the previous guy a bit too quickly as well. But like. Uh, you know, I'd seen there was Henry Winter, one of the reporters, writing about it this morning, saying that uh, you know um, Graham Potter may be out of his depth, but surely that's not relevant against a team like Fulham, who you know he would have. Uh, look, uh, I, I say a team like Fulham, they're six in the Premier League, they're actually ahead of Chelsea, they're yeah, absolutely excited. Yeah. It's a, maybe a bad example, but like that, that's not him. Surely at that point, being out of his depth, and also with the game last night, like a raft of individual errors. I know that. You know, you could. Uh, that's not always not. Uh, you can't always say that that's not partly to do with the manager as well. But it does yeah. feel as if it's well with, with the Fulham example. I, I actually don't think it's to do with the opposition. I think it's Potter in his own head about being Chelsea manager. And again, to reference Feligan this morning, he was kind of saying the thing with him is, and uh, and Cameron was saying the same is like Potter isn't carrying himself as a Chelsea manager. Yeah. He's like, oh my god, I, he, there is there is definitely a vibe, this kind of intangible feeling that like I can't believe I'm Chelsea manager. And <laughs> mm. like the other thing, like and we said it a few times, Shane, about last season, Potter at Brighton, he got booed yeah. after a home game around this time last year. The fans are very you know understanding. I mean? like, and it was only like the first six weeks of this season that he had that incredible spell. And he is a really good manager. And I hope it works out for Potter because he seemed like I like his path, like you know, mm. coaching in Sweden and have like yeah. and a real thinker. And like he has um, other elements other than football to his life. And he has a, a degree as well, like in psychology. I think he's big on. Like so, I'm really fascinated by the guy. I hope it works out for him. I can't see it. I just can't see him being manager. Really, any any even medium term at Chelsea. No. Do you remember, like, uh, he went over and clapped the Chelsea fans at full time? And the Chelsea fans appeared to be quite amenable at full time, considering the, the result and the dire form. I actually thought they were reasonably respectful. Of course, there's a cohort of fans that they won't be. He kind of looks like, do you remember the, the guy went into the BBC studios by accident <laughs> and he ended up in an interview yeah. that he shouldn't have been on and he tried to play it off and, and do the interview? There's an element of that off Potter at the minute where he's and like, he shouldn't how be am like I that. here? He shouldn't be like that no. because he's much better than that. He's much better than he's carrying himself. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but listen, uh, you can be certain that Potter last night after the game, and he's never going to say it publicly, of course, um, but he's looking at that going, like, 
What's my keeper? What my keeper's let me down here. Kepler, you know, Kepler, like, 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 Kepler for that winning I was goal. Like, what are you? What are you up to? Like, and I, he did the same I, last same last week against Maris. What, so, so, so there is, like you know, I think I'm not sure that Potter is in any bit of him is the guy from the BBC. I'm sure that he's fully believing that he's the right person. He has to believe that he's the right I person. I think he's landed in this job too early. And he's also what he's doing now is looking at the keeper and looking at maybe Aspilicueta, who's about. 68, I think, at this stage, uh, and thinking, well, maybe there's a bit of a reshuffle needed here. Ah, uh, yeah, but look at the list. Like, I have the list of injuries in front of me here, like Wesley Fafana, Ben Chilwell, Reese James, Ngolo Kante, Armanda Broha, who's out for the season, uh, Christian Pulisic, Edward Mendy, that's why Kepa's playing, Raheem Sterling, and Ruben Loftus Streak. They're all injured. Now, it also goes to say that Chelsea have about 4 million players. Yeah. Because they still had good players in the bench. But last is that night. list not enough to give the man a break? Well, that's, there's one element to it, but I really don't think there's any sympathy out there at all when big teams have a lot of injuries. And then he's got... No, nobody cares, like. No. That's he, just, nobody gives... He's got Aubameyang then sitting on the bench, and yes, last night, you would think in a normal situation is the perfect opportunity to bring him on. Mm. Doesn't bring him on, because he's he's not good enough. And I think the BT panellists last night were saying Kai Havertz now is going to be the number nine with, with like the way things are going with, with Felix. And, and like... That's a, he's, it's a shit show. He's been given that, you know. Two, that was a Tuchel's, or it wasn't a, a Graham Potter signing. Aubameyang. There was an so, episode of Dream Team twenty years ago where Carl Fletcher was brought on star striker and taken off, and that was the end mm. of Carl Fletcher's first stint at Harchester United. Mm. And for Aubameyang to be brought on after five minutes last Thursday night for the injured Raheem Sterling and yeah. to be brought off after sixty-seven, there's no coming back for Pierre. Um, okay, uh, Bob, Bobby <laughs> Dwyer. Good morning to you. Enough on mid-table Chelsea. It's Derby weekend. The simultaneous feeling of nerves and excitement. Surely Martin Lipton should be on today. We might uh, touch on that a little bit later on. Greg Gansey says Turlock Clerken. Thank you. The surname I think Thank gives it away. Monaghan name. Well, probably related to. Yeah, like I that. know Turlock. says know very little need to mention the jumper. We can all see it. Thank you. That's fair enough. There are people see it from space that are, potentially that are just uh, listening to us. Just on that point of, of uh, uh, Bobby Dwyer saying move on to the big game this weekend. Often, and I look, there's probably Fulham fans tuning in this morning, we're all guilty of doing this. Do you know when, it, when a team, say United, win a match or Liverpool win a match, mm. their, their followers often listen to the post-match podcasts from all the podcast groups. Mm. You don't really want to listen to a podcast where your team has lost, so the numbers skyrocket. We have to give some credit to Fulham. We're guilty of doing ah, this totally, all the time. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, fourth yeah. straight league, like they're up to sixth. Uh, Tim Ream was great in the interview afterwards last night, he was very honest. Um, gave his jersey away to a little fan in the crowd as well. Fulham deserve credit. They do, but and, and like we were so guilty of of honing in on that. Like, there's probably loads of f- Irish Fulham fans that are like really? waiting for that little moment of praise. <laughs> Fulham beat Chelsea two one. <laughs> Let's hear from you. Yeah, yeah, if you're a Fulham fan and you're Irish, um, let us know in the comments. No, that's true. But if we talked about Fulham solely today, like the comments, no, of course, about Potter, you know, no, so, no, just a word too. Yeah, but it, no, they're they're very good. But we, also, that happens so much now in the last decade. Is like you always have when a a smaller team beats a bigger side and so like, oh we should give credit to the smaller team and everyone's in agreement and then everybody moves back on to the I big know. team yeah, yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. like almost that line itself is justifying it yeah um, dropping on Netflix this morning at some point um, today Shane will be a brand new tennis behind the scenes tennis documentary docuseries fly on the wall thing called uh Breakpoint. Break the reverse of a great film called Point Break. <laughs> of course, yeah. yeah. By Patrick Swayze and Keanu Reeves, which is fantastic. Mm. Break point. I like so both words. Made by the people who made Drive to Survive and are also making the new upcoming golf documentary. Yeah. Six Nations as well. Uh, now yeah. they're doing a Six Nations one, interesting yeah. enough. Um, but this is, I mean, of all the things that to be in the wheelhouse of yourself, um, this, is, this is dream team stuff for you. 
Yeah, you've, you've watched. You've you've seen. Yeah, the you and I you had the had the luxury, the, the very good fortune of uh, getting an advance screening. Of it? Of it. Tell, tell, there's a lot of tennis fans waiting. Um, so there's five episodes out now, as of as we speak, on Netflix and uh, this side of the world, and there's five more coming in June. First episode concentrates solely on Nick Kyrgios at the Australian Open last year, this time last year, and for those who remember, he got knocked out early in the singles, and basically was like, I don't know if I'm going to play tennis again, and then went on to win the doubles with uh, his best buddy. Um, Tanasi Kakamakis, and it follows him basically in his mental health journey. And then the following four episodes, there are actually two players each per episode. So Kyrgios gets his own special treatment in the first episode. So Adrian and myself were asking the producers about that yesterday. Why was that the case? And that interview is going to come up at um, half past nine today. We're going to play basically it with Netflix it. said. Spoiler alert. Netflix yeah, well, I mean, look, yeah. the, the thing is, like, it is, it's very, to, like, a very brief synopsis of the whole thing. It's very interesting to see how, just how lonely these players are. Like, it's a brutal sport for the vast, vast majority of them, and they all acknowledge that. The one disappointment is, like, by my count, Kyrgios is just about the seventh most famous tennis player in the world. And in seventh? This, in this series, he's the most famous, because there's no Djokovic, Nadal, Federer, Serena... Andy Murray or Naomi Osaka. They're all absent. Now, Nadal is in the documentary, the first five episodes, but very much cast as the, um, the silent antagonist. This is kind of the guy we have to beat, and he's always there in the distance on the other okay. side of the net. So if you knew absolutely nothing about tennis or coming to this for the first time this sport, you'd be like, oh, this guy seems to be very good, this Nadal guy, but we don't know anything about him. So uh, I would say, like, Adrian, like, who's the documentary for? It's probably for people who are, have a slight interest in tennis, and kind of want to know more about it are people who just kind of like a dramatic narrative it's not for you this is Cullum's way of saying you know I'm, I'm above I'm, no 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 well, how, many, uh, how many episodes have you used to watch watch about this. Tennis, huh? how many episodes have you both seen I've seen one and a half I've seen uh, the first four okay so you, you've already interviewed the uh, producer so you can now be honest what like what, is, we were, is, we were saying is it worth is it worth watching yeah, I would it's, it's, look. It's yeah, I would say and, it is. And yeah. like, I'm I'm probably that person that you're talking about in that. Like, I'm fairly easy breezy about tennis, whereas you're obviously much deeper into it. Um, it's the the difficulty, and we were saying this yesterday. The difficulty for them is that they've made Drive to Survive. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just such a brilliant series that it's hard to compete you know, with. It. It's very hard, and you know, we'll see what happens with these other ones. And that that's one side. But then another side, you have they're sitting with these players who now suddenly sort of realise that this is what's going to happen. Like, you're going to Ask me mm. awkward questions at awkward times, and so they don't, you know, there's no teething almost in that regard. Um, it's not as good as Drive to Survive. No, but Drive to Survive, I'm right in saying, had the biggest hitters and the biggest players, yeah, sure. basically. No, they've kind of dropped off, or Stappen doesn't do it anymore yeah. because of the, they feel like they stitch some pieces together and make interviews look and sound different to how they actually went. But even the fact he was in it and then yeah, stepped exactly. back his news. At least he was there, and Hamilton has been in it. it, it the, Drive to Survive have been criticised for maybe over-dramatising some of the races and battles and, and kind of, not falsifying, but um, inventing little, um, I guess, images to make races look more dramatic. Like, is, is it yeah, similar? There, in there is, yeah, there's two examples of it, I would say, that um, the tournaments that they're focusing on, I would, I would argue, aren't that big a deal and they're making out to be massive. Right. But I understand why they did because it's the best way to follow that individual player's journey. Yeah, so like fair. Maria Sakkari, the Greek player, features heavily in this and she's, re- like, she's a fascinating character to follow. And I'd say the most interesting scene so far in the first four episodes in the second episode... Alia Tomljanovic, the Australian player, and Matteo Berrettini, the Italian, they were actually a couple at the time a year ago. They were going out. They subsequently broke up. And Tomljanovic ended up having the best season she's ever had. She went deep into the latter season uh, Grand Slams. But there's a scene in the hotel room where 
uh, they're arguing basically and they don't care that the cameras are there and it's just fascinating because Tomjanovic is eliminated very early from the Australian Open whereas Berrettini goes all the way very very deep but Tomjanovic stays to support her partner mm. and the tension between like their sleeping patterns and like who's going to sleep where yeah. and it, it, they're so ruthless and so they have to be selfish and Berrettini's like I need my sleep like don't go near me and but and she's understanding of that and it's like wow like this is this goes to show their obsession and they all feel so inferior to the big three and to Serena that's so palpable mm. they're still trying to they're like these people are kind of superhuman how are we ever going to compete with them and I, like I always thought tennis there's a glamorous nature to it you're travelling all around the world it's fantastic you're playing in lovely weather all the time but like it's so brutal like it's just such a brutal sport and that, the, that's uh, what it shows What's the money like at the slams for you know progressing even to the quarters, semis, that sort of thing? I think you get about six figures, right? Early, yeah, early yeah. six figures. Yeah. But if you look at like we were saying there, Shane, the other day in the office, like Naomi Osaka, her um, her earnings for last year, she earned I think forty two million, and nine hundred thousand of that came from tennis. It's crazy. Like so it was all. It was Here all. Is obviously somebody who uh, is. Uh, not he, 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 he say he plays 10, 11 weeks of the year. Yeah, he's part time, completely part time. And how much did he make a year now? Um, so if you do the math on that, he's like he gets to about the third or fourth round regularly. So that's about one or two hundred k a tournament, depending on a tournament. He only plays the bigger ones. He's so then he's earning. I'd say he earns about a million, million and a half for a tournament. It shouldn't be a lot given the lifestyle, and he doesn't have very many coaches, I suppose. And he's no coaches at all. He's mm-hmm. nobody. He's he is. That's why he's a ridiculous. Does he have any endorsements given his? Yeah, he has Ad Nike, boy, yeah. Nike's uh, sponsor. He uses Cameo, doesn't he, Column? He uses Cameo, he gets a bit of bab off that. Cameo, Column. He's not into Adrian. But yeah, you know what Cameo is, Adrian? Hmm? You know what Cameo is? Do I know what Cameo is? Yeah. <laughs> you, you could get involved in Cameo. Cameo is where you, you, there's a, it's a website and you, you pay a certain amount of money to a celebrity to record a ah, sorry, personalized yeah, yeah, yeah. video for you. Column has one from Nick Curios from a few yeah. years ago. There's, oh, that's right. Yeah. Jay from The Inbetweeners apparently makes a fortune off that. Seems. So he has a bit of that. But like he has a gaff in the Bahamas, Curios. And like he goes home to Canberra. He's house there. So he, he more than makes enough money for himself. But yeah. like he still needs to maintain it. But his obsession with the game actually betrays the fact that like this guy is the least professional person you're ever going to see in your life. It'll be interesting to see with the, the rugby one, which is, uh, they've, you know, they've come, they come up drive to survive, break point. They've got all these sort of uh, full swing, I think, is the golf one. Yes. There's the, the rugby one for the Six Nations is a planning working title, Six Nations. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, but they, that's because they're comfortable that people will be interested. Well, we'll see. I, I am, I'm interested in it just in the context of the World Cup and, you know, are people going to be as giving as they might normally be outside of a World Cup here? Yeah. But you don't want to be giving any other team. It'll be mm. interesting to see. Um, and uh, we'll, we will come back and chat about that again. So, but, yeah, uh, it starts on Monday with the Australian Open. No. We'll come back yeah. and chat about that. <laughs> it's it's good to know. Day, good to know. It's a big sport. Eight minutes to eight. He just as his big microphone tournament. fades out. It's a big sport. It's, it's this a is Manchester tournament. United. I love that. This is a big tournament. Eight minutes to eight, Friday morning. Good morning to you, wherever it is you're at this morning. OTBM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effort that's finished here today. Here's what's coming up on the show for you over the course of the morning between now and ten. We're going to have Ronan Agara and Alan Quinlan, both standing by, going to join us in a couple of moments' time. Louise Quinn, a Republic of Ireland defender, it's uh, the WSL is back and the women's championship as well where she currently plies her trade so we get her thoughts on that and a few movements around the Irish football scene as well uh, Tim Stillman is a football writer on all things Arsenal and a very interesting weekend obviously headed North London Derby so we shall talk to Tim about that and a few more bits and pieces as well let you know what's happening across the uh, newspapers this morning uh, actor Simon Delaney actor and broadcaster Simon Delaney uh, will join us Manchester United Uber fan 
uh, will join us at 10 past 9 as well to discuss uh, the Liverpool game this weekend and uh, I'm sure a few more bits as well Rio uh, Ferdinand this morning uh, saying that the jury is still out on Eric Ten Hag we might get Simon's thoughts on that and as we've just been discussing Breakpoint the brand new uh, Netflix documentary which tracks the game of tennis uh, is now live and uh, the a couple of producers from that are going to join us at uh, half past nine this morning with Alvin Cullum. So that is where we're at. And as I said, we're brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish uh, to your day. It is 7.53. It's Friday morning and uh, we're going to uh, welcome Ronan Agarra to the show. Ronan, good morning to you. Adrian, how are you? How are you keeping? Very well, you? Good. Are you watching any of these um, Flying the Wall documentaries? No, no, I haven't. It was interesting. I got any came on uh, two minutes ago but I, I, I missed it really what were you discussing? Breakpoint it's a new Netflix documentary it's like the I don't know if you've seen Drive to Survive the Formula 1 version no no very I, good um, honestly yeah it's been uh, the Six Nations have signed up with Netflix now and they're doing a documentary of the 2023 Six Nations that's yeah. the idea is it? yeah did somebody say you had the you had French a French crew with you last year Um. I'm going to take that as internal. 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 Okay. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, we did was a documentary, all right, um, pro, uh, on um, on our season, but it was yeah, it was impressive for an in-house job, you know, very impressive. And was it? But, how was it for you? Like, are you kind of mind your p's and q's around it, or? No, because I suppose I, I Dave Berry. I remember Dave Berry did a documentary. Um, uh, when I was playing, I was kind of followed for about two years, and um, uh, it was very an interesting, um, really interesting uh, period because um, it got to the stage where you had no idea um, that you were piece the camera, mm-hmm. um, and actually looking back on it, um, your capacity to recall events straight away within that kind of. 10-minute window post-game to a Monday morning. Well, can you talk me through your feelings on Saturday night? Our, our polls apart. <laughs> uh, and there was uh, some interesting takes on, on what had to be taken out because, did I say that? Did I say mm-hmm. that? <laughs> uh, when you're in that emotional range and post-game, um, it, 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 um, it strips you of all your, your uh, not decency, but of your capacity, I suppose, to filter. I remember talking to you after an, a lot of games and it always struck me you're, uh, and it wouldn't have been in the immediate aftermath, aftermath but um, I remember even after there was a Wales game in Cardiff after we'd been beaten, you were always like hugely analytical and passionate and giving, you know, in a way that it never felt as if you were sort of, and look, maybe you were as well, but it never really felt like you were sort of holding much back. But are you saying that that was kind of, that wasn't so much you drawing your, showing your true personality as... Um, the adrenaline still been up. I think sometimes you underestimate too of how much you go into that uh, zone. I think preparing for a game, probably especially as a game manager, of a strategist, of a, of a, of, a, of I suppose your mindset of moving the team around the pitch in terms of how you can expo- exploit weaknesses in the opposition. A lot of that is probably my responsibility when I played. It would be how you view it as a coach, but also. I think when I was a player, it was great to watch other coaches potentially um, um, play with the media or try to um, string them along in the fact where I think 
uh, people are intelligent and it's very, very difficult to manipulate the media. My approach was that it's more easier, far easier, to be honest, than to have to cover your words or, 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 or track back to what you potentially said. Because as you can find out nowadays, there's some brilliant things on Twitter which uh, you can watch, for example, in the Ronaldo situation where it's all about uh, achievement and it's all about uh, Ego. values. Yes. <laughs> uh, fast forward and I think it's whatever, was it 200 million a year he signed for, is it? Mm. Yeah, totally. I think me and, me and Roland are waiting for the uh, the Fly in the Wall darts documentary. <laughs> I think that you off, might be. Uh, off, <laughs> off, off the ball, maybe. Um <laughs> Now, speaking of things that you, you may or may not remember, stuff that you said, and we'll bring Alan Quinlan here. Good morning to you, Quinny. And at the same time, um, I have a clip here, Ronan. It's 57 seconds long. It's uh, Brian O'Driscoll in conversation with Nathan last night, so uh, hopefully you can hear this loud and clear. Rog was on to me in 06 um, before they won Europe going, do you want to come down here? And I was like, what? Um, sorry, what now? Sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, t- talk about this a bit more. <laughs> Do I never say this? No, Rogers on say, kind of tentatively. He'll he'll say, oh, "I never properly. I was never properly asking." But he was he was definitely hedging his bets a small bit and inquiring as to whether I might have had any interest at all. It was when we were in a we were a bit of a basket case back in in oh five oh six. You know, four coaches in four years. Checker came in. The squad that he inherited was all over the shop, um, and. And did he did he just ring you up or was this a conversation in no, Ireland camp? No, it was a conversation in camp, and he and he kind of threw it out there. It wasn't a formal, you know. I've got a contract here ready for you to sign, but it was like, would you would you think about coming down? <laughs> you, he definitely was asked to inquire as to whether right. You know, <laughs> well, what's the uh, what? What is your uh, your response? As uh, guilty as charged or no? I, I don't uh, remember the. The specific conversation, but um, uh, over a period of playing with Brian on my career, um, I would say that was uh, most definitely the case. You know, I think Leinster are very different now to where they were at that stage. Mm. Um, it's interesting, maybe that we that was probably before we had won Europe, but we'd be knocking on the door and we were probably by far the dominant team uh, but I suppose in my head it was kind of well uh, does Brian see himself winning something with Leinster does he want to come down to, to Munster and try and win something and um, obviously we had I think Trevor Halstead John Kelly we had Lifemi and we had Rua Tapoki but Brian O'Driscoll would have been addition to whatever team we'd play in um, so I think that's a pretty normal uh, probably thought process for someone that I was probably close with in the Irish team and um, you know I think as Nathan kind of in the clip that you haven't played the before and after of that is that he I think he could have gone down very well with the supporters in Munster but it wasn't to be and I can understand completely but um, I don't um, I suppose find it um, to um, um, 
abnormal a conversation at all. An ambitious player where I think he could add and offer something to your to your team. Um, be sure I checked him out. Yeah, I suppose if it was the other way around, Ronan, and say hypothetically Munster were struggling at that point, then you probably would have entertained and you know understood why someone like Brian would maybe come to you and try and bring you the other direction. I guess it's a, it's a natural love conversation to have in in an international camp. These uh, these chats do happen. Yeah, exactly. A lot more so than you would think. And I think among competitors, it's exactly what people ask, well, why does the Lions work? The Lions work because it's uh, the best players uh, pitched together in a very short period of time who are ultimately competitors who want to challenge themselves at the highest possible level. Uh, so this thing about how do you get on with the Welsh and the Scottish and the English you get on with them after eating dinner and you and you decide you want to have a go off something. It's very natural in sports people to be able to do that. People struggle sometimes with that. I think, um, yeah, thankfully for for me, I never had that decision because uh, I suppose the group that was established at Munster by, uh, you know I mean, the guys who came before me, the values and the traditions and, and the... I suppose the standards were established, so it was an easy enough group to go into, and then we just tried to add to that. Uh, while in Leinster's case, that wasn't the scenario. They had a lot of talented players that were hugely underachieving, that maybe hadn't established their values, but they obviously rectified that and kicked on to a new level. But for Brian, probably in a team performance in his own uh, standards, there was definitely uh, periods where they were underachieving. Gary Neville had talked about something fairly similar a couple of years ago. He'd said that he'd gone to Stephen Gerrard during an England camp and said, here, would you ever think about it? It sounds like the conversation was sort of similar enough in the sense that Stevie G was like, no, listen, I'm uh, red to the core and uh, Liverpool red to the core and it's not happening. Do you... um, So, sorry, the point being that you're... I think you're absolutely right. I think Nathan's reaction was all of our reaction when we first heard it. We were like, what? Whoa, because it would have been monster news, but not a... Not an unusual conversation to have. Do you remember it, or are you kind of like, ah, there might have been something? No, I don't remember the... Well, if it was a... I would say it was probably... uh, If it was probably me, I would say it would have been... I don't think it would have been a one-off. I'd say it was probably consistent probing there. (laughs) And it it wouldn't have been you directed by someone at Munster to have that conversation? No, I'd say that's that's where it'd be different. I think... um, you know, I think in the situation, Munster was a very honest um, in, environment and it was hugely driven by players at that stage. I think um, I, I probably would have been uh, an idea that I would have had in my head, but uh, maybe there was something deeper behind it from a, from a CEO or, or a, a general manager point of view. But... Um, it would have suited everyone, I suppose, for me to do that initial conversation. I think if you were coming back up the road saying, listen, I've been chatting to him and he's interested, I think that might have been, uh, you might have been pushing doors easy enough. Were you yourself ever, did anybody ever approach you like that? Because obviously both yourself and Quinny won club players, but were you ever approached? Yeah, of course I was, yeah. And that ca- in that kind of a casual way, sorry, I mean more than... No, no, in casual and official ways, but um, you'd have to be off your rocker to leave Munster. As I said, I played in 10 European Cup semi-finals. Yeah, we lacked the quality at times to win it, but there's some massive satisfaction in um, being able to sleep at night preparing yourself that you've, you're in the last four of Europe every year. 
and that's uh, everything we stood for. I think high standards, getting the best out of each other, driving each other. Uh, do I look back and go, "Well, we should have had six medals"? Yeah, I do. But you move on very quickly with a with a more grateful attitude that um, we were there thereabouts when it came to silverware, but lacked a little bit with the benefit of experience or hindsight. You'd love to change, but were you ever? Were you ever? No, no worries, Ron. Uh, were you ever tapped up yourself, Quinny, in, in training or international camps or otherwise? To or done any tapping up? Oh yeah, vice vice versa either. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I was doing the tapping up rather than being tapped up. Um, I had a few opportunities to go to, um, you know, to go overseas uh, at different stages. And uh, as Rog was saying, look, it was we were very lucky. It was a team that um, we were knocking on the door every year for, for numbers number of years. So um, unless it was completely down to money, um, if you wanted to win things or being competing for trophies, it was a very hard team to leave. Even some guys left um, for a couple of years and, and, and came back and that draw was always there. So we were very lucky in that sense. But um, I was always trying to, uh, at times, look to push the recruitment and get better um get better players in. It kind of backfired on me in, in, in 2003, 2004, um, when I was pushing to, to to get Jim Williams in, but uh, he came in then and took my place in the team for a period of time. So, um, yeah, it can backfire on you when you're looking to bring in players. You can be rest assured, Roger was pushing no out halves. <laughs> yeah, if Brian was number really? 10, I don't think that would have happened. And, and you know where all that started? The 2001 Lions Tour. Really? We had a, br- we, we had a brilliant uh, last gaps victory against the Brumbies in Canberra. And who was back row for the, for the, uh, for the Brumbies? Big Jim Williams. <laughs> and all of a sudden he ended up playing in Munster. You don't have to scratch your head too hard there. <laughs> what did they say about your best friends? <laughs> yeah, Jesus. Quinny's life flashed before his eyes as he saw that, conversa- that uh, performance. Um, 30 points to 7 Ronan uh, to lose last weekend a long time trying must have been sweet uh, you, you always have to get the dig in first I'm not you? it's a compliment it's a compliment Just, <laughs> I hope you had your uh, La Rochelle jersey on I have the flag yeah I have the flag at home the kids have it out all the time yeah <laughs> uh, yeah it was much needed mind you it was a lot of injuries in La Rochelle's team and double triple Injuries in the Toulouse team, so probably from a full, I suppose, dream list, it was six or seven we were down. They were probably down 12 or 13, so read what you want into it. Yeah. But very important for progression that we, uh, no matter how you look at it, um, I think it was nine defeats in a row. It's a, it's a big statistic in in modern rugby, so... That's buried, thankfully. So now we can move on, hopefully, as um, like we do against any other team in Europe, where uh, we don't have that uh, because it is mental baggage till it's um, banished. On the you mentioned there just about the the uh, importance of it in the context of of the season, and certainly in the context of the table as well. Obviously, keeps you in touch with Toulouse um, and with Sad as well. Does that? A position almost in the table from your point of view does that allow you a bit more room to breathe almost in a week when you're you've got the safety of that or does it make make an awful lot of difference 
Yeah, of course it does, yeah. And it's uh, incredibly, I suppose, um, frustrating, yet a learning period when, the, you know, you have a game against Poe. We got destroyed by Poe at home while the neutral would say there's absolutely no way that should happen. Um, and it sums up that if you're not on high alert every week and you lack humility some weeks, you get uh, handed a good roasting. And that's what happened, losing to Bordeaux at home, losing to Poe at home, their games. As you say, when you kind of have a look at your trajectory and what you can do with potential squad selections and, and points for the table, um, you uh, would highlight them as... as as victories but um, in this game you just never know Adrian so yeah it was very important in that regard the key I suppose uh, driver for me is the fact that we uh, were competing on two fronts Europe and uh, the Bouclier which isn't the case with all the top 14 teams obviously probably uh, six of them are going for Europe Um, so you need a, a loaded squad and group to be able to do that but what Costas last year was um, if you're getting the first two, you get a weekend off. And a weekend off at that time and period of the season it gives you huge oxygen and gives you a chance to recharge or go for um, um, a um, stage. What's a stage in English? A, br- a break, is it? No, when you go for a pre-season tour or a, or a mid-season break or a mid-season bonding uh, trip. Yeah. What's the English word for that? I'm actually having a moment here. I, love, Sorry. Get, okay. I love this. I once interviewed an, an American astronaut who, who studied to, Russian to go up to the space station and he, uh, he started dreaming in Russian. He got to the point where he was so <laughs> invested. It started to happen to Ronan now. He's, he's, he's thinking and dreaming in French. But you're all into sport. Tell me what a what what a mid-season camp is. What's a stage in English? I don't know. What is it like? A, I, of course, I, I, it is. if you go down, you go down to so Forta have top-class facilities, and they host all the English Premiership teams or all the GA teams or the things. What, what do you call that? A just mid-season a, camp. A team bonding. Yeah. Session. No, it's not called that. There's a different word for it, Adrian. You're... <laughs> It begins with R, doesn't it? I think the word we're trying to think of. I've, I haven't a clue, but um, Quinny's not Quinny jumping in here to save us. Either, no, he? exactly. Us, he? <laughs> He's ever um, since Jim Williams came up, Roger. He's been very quiet. <laughs> mid-season camp, yeah. Mid-season camp. <laughs> <laughs> That's the final, the final word on it. But what I actually think uh, we may introduce, Shane, we've more OTB history this morning with the... Not alone have we the Ali, Ali Pali bus, we have the stage. I think that could actually fit into the English vocab better than a mid-season camp. I'm, yeah. more, uh, I'm more attracted by that one as well. Let's get on to the Oxford English Dictionary and add it to it. Makes sense. Yeah. So uh, that's exactly... Come on now, back to, back to task, boys. We have uh, the opportunity to... If you get in the first two, you have... Obviously, you go straight to semi-final. Yeah. While if you're third, fourth, fifth or sixth, you go quarter-final route, which... If you're trying to compete in Europe, um, makes it extremely difficult. So that was um, what we're trying to do this year: stay and stay in the hunt for the top two. The injury's not easing any ahead of the, tomorrow night, are they? No, but it's the same for everyone. Um, interesting um, presentation from our medical team this week, and the fact that Journey or 
game 15, 16, 17, 18 is when you should have, or historically with all the data, when injuries uh, are at their highest in the top 14. And uh, you look at, I suppose, the um, the injury sick bay, a um, lot of casualties, a lot of casualties, but that's why you, you put the focus on the group and not the team. So, uh, yeah, we have a lot of boys missing against Ulster, but um, we um, have to make sure that that our group is strong enough. I thought the word began began with or. Cameron and our team suggested retreat. Is that the word, Ronan? You're thinking of? Oh, that's not because that. I, I, and that's not really. That can be a religious retreat yeah, as well. That's all I'm yeah, a, ret- a retreat is where you go to Medjugorje or Fatima <laughs> or somewhere like that. <laughs> <laughs> my yeah, my yeah. mum. My mum goes in them all the time. <laughs> Rugby <laughs> retreat, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Lords. <laughs> we might all uh, Lourdes, we might all need one of those trips man. soon. Um, right, we're going to keep Quinny on the line. Uh, Ronan, thanks a million as always. We'd love to consider consideration of that word now and come back. Uh, convalesce, uh, somebody said, but I don't think it's not convalesce, is it? No. That's after you've had some sort of a... Let's just go with stage, I like it. Yeah, yeah. stage. Yeah, you like it too, you know, it's yeah. kidding. Yeah. Go to get the old... Ross Lingo back in at a stage. Stephen Roach in the stage. Sean Kelly. It's the pronunciation you see. We would say Hugo Lloris, but as Ronan said last week, his kids Ugo. say Ugo. Ugo, yeah. Or Ugo, exactly. Ugo's retired now from, from France. You don't pronounce his name. He's, he's, gone, he's gone, lads. We've lost him. We've lost him. <laughs> no, <laughs> <when> he's, <laughs> he's just trying you to get rid of your Ronan. Never mind that. The, uh, the H-, H in French is silent. There's no such thing as... So any... Uh, Harry Redknapp is Harry. Harry Redknapp and... Harry Glynn, who plays with us, is Harry Glynn. So you don't, the H is silent. Just a little bit of yeah. you, you 1% could, there this you, morning. You come for the uh, for the behind-the-scenes uh, details, Larry Shell, and you get, you get yourself a, a French lesson while you're at it. Class. How bad. Good man. <laughs> See you, boys. Good luck. Good luck. Um, Cheers, kid. Quinny, come in from the call there. Talk to us a little bit about uh, La Rochelle and, and Ulster and like how their season is going in terms of it obviously backtracking and, uh, and why that is and if they can put it right tomorrow. Um, for Ulster, um, obviously the last few weeks has, have been pretty dreadful, Adrian. Um, you know, they've lost, they've won one, one game in, in, in six, which is, it's really difficult in a lot of circumstances and, and things have gone against them and, uh, they haven't got, a, got the bounce of the ball or they haven't created, um, the ability to, to see out games. I think, um, you could go back through a couple of those games and, and, they're in control up in Belfast against Munster and Munster a brilliant comeback and they lack the ability to to finish them off there I think they had a great fight back last week in Benetton in Italy got themselves ahead right from the kickoff um, they concede the lead again and and uh, making too many mistakes and um, I think we we've probably referenced it a couple of times if you go back to that that Leinster game where they were in complete control at half time. Keane Healy was red carded and Leinster turned it around. And, you know, I know they scored just before half time. Leinster gave them a real lifeline and, a, and an energy boost going in at half time. Something isn't right there. I think psychologically, um, they seem wounded a little bit and, you know, they're turning the ball over a lot and making lots of mistakes. I still think there's a, there's a good side there, a very talented side. They're a strange side. And I'm sure even, you know, if we were asking Rog to analyse um, Ulster and strengths and weaknesses and all that kind of stuff, uh, you'd find lots of positives in, in, and lots of danger in their attack. But uh, turning the ball too 
over too much. Um, I did the game last week against Benetton commentary and, you know, continuously they're getting into good positions and they just become, they're a little bit porous, I think, at times and frustrating if you're an Ulster fan. Obviously, it's frustrating for the players and management as well, but um, it doesn't get any easier this week, does it, going to La Rochelle? And, no. and this is, this is, they're out of Europe if they lose this one, really. So, um, they're in a tough place at the moment when you, you look back at the results um, since that Leinster game and they've won one game in six. You wouldn't think that's what's going to happen to Ulster given the start of the season they had. So they're they're in a tough place at the moment. Yeah, um, I, we've, we're bang out of time, but I can't let you go. So give me a 30 second answer if you can. Uh, Munster Saints, obviously, at home and tomorrow and um, Munster's run and your expectations from that uh, from that game tomorrow repeat of the previous leg. Yeah, I think Munster need to be more clinical. Um, you know, you, you we don't know what side Northampton are sending, but um, the last number of weeks have been in contrast, different contrast to Ulster, much more positive for, for Munster. They're still, you know, they're not the finished article. We know that, but they're playing a lot better. They look a lot fitter. Um, and there's a li- there was a little bit of bite in that game in November, so in December, that that um, that game in Franklin's Gardens. So, um, test for Munster mentally. Can they, you know, there's an expectation now for them to go out and win this game and possibly get a bonus point. Can they do that? This will be another challenge for them mentally. So, um I think they're in a decent place and they're making progress, but they're still short with injury. So um, they're ones you can't underestimate, uh, but they have to, you know, be going for the juggler here. And if they get five points, they go to eleven, and they're possibly in the knockout stages. So it's a, a big opportunity for them, and hopefully they can build on what they've been doing. Yeah, we'll, uh, and particularly in the last two weeks, we'll have a lot more time for you, Quinny, when we chat to you next week. Uh, thanks, William, for jumping on. Cheers, lads. Thanks a lot. 18 minutes past eight. Louise Quinn is next. OTB AM. Almost 20 past eight. Louise Quinn, good morning to you. How's the form? Yeah, it's good. It's good. How are things with you? Good. You're nine or ten games into the championship season. There was a bit of chat, obviously, before the start of the season that you might have hopped from Birmingham City and taken the opportunity to stay in the WSL, but you stayed. How have you found the, the level over that time? Um, yeah, listen, I've been really pleased. I think even just the level that we have... Um, in the club now, the players that we brought in um, have been, you know, really high quality. We also brought in a brilliant um, assistant coach in Joe Potter, who just has, you know, all the experience of WSL level, international level. Um, and I think it just really works. And I think just the level of the the championship has really, you know, come up in the last two, three years. And and you can see it, you know, the the games are, are not easy. Everything is competitive. Um you know, and you really just kind of you can see a lot of the you know WSL players filtering, filtering down as well. But it just brings that kind of strength and experience to the league, um, and yeah, and it's something where you know thankfully the clubs are trying to to support really support these championship teams as well to to get up and be at the top level, and they're just trying to support women's football. Bit of an Irish contingent, Louise, at uh, at Birmingham City, which is always nice, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we've. Uh, We've a really good bunch, and yeah, Harriet, Lucy, um, Jamie, obviously, and then uh, Eleanor has. Um, she's gone on loan now, um, un- like you know, unfortunate for the team because she's a she's an absolutely brilliant teammate, brilliant character. But yeah, she just hasn't maybe got the minutes that that she wanted, and and at times maybe deserved. So um, yeah, she's she's gone to Coventry now, but 
yeah, we'll uh, we'll miss her a lot. But yeah, there's the it's a it's a strong Irish a strong Irish crew definitely. I remember chatting to Emma Byrne before one of the qualifiers out in Tala and we were talking about, it was pre-match uh, chat, we were talking about um, what the options were up front and I had mentioned something to do with Quinn up front and she was like, oh, you must have misspoken. Lucy Quinn, surely you're talking about. I was like, no, what about Louise Quinn? Uh, what's the, what's your, what has it done for your game? Uh, like 32 is not, oh, by any stretch and centre-backs definitely tend to knock a bit more out of the game, uh, Louise, maybe than, than uh, other areas of the pitch. What has it done for your game um, in terms of your style of play and, and that kind of thing? Um, yeah, I think even now it's, it's, you know, I've gone through phases where obviously you've, you know, you, let's say you're playing with Arsenal, you're very much in control of the ball and then, you know, moved around sometimes in Ireland, you know, with the Irish team, it's not the case. And then we'll say even with, with Blues last year, it was, you know, it was it was trying to survive. It was, you know, some, you know, absolute defending bodies on the line sort of stuff. Whereas in now, you know, again, we have we have a lot of control of the ball. So again, it's it's just bringing me a different aspect of how I kind of, can control the ball, see the pitch, make sure I'm picking the right passes with quality. Um, you know what I mean? And that's the, the, the constant standards we're trying to keep, um, you know, at Blues as well. So for me, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's that sort of playing style, but then also just, yeah, captaining the team and having to, you know, lead kind of differently from last year to this year as well and so you're just learning a lot about players and a lot about yourself as well and um, I'm just yeah it's it is just still really enjoyable I just love playing you know my football at the moment and yeah 32 is you know that's it's nothing it's the new 25 is what we're saying yeah we'd um Shabana Hearn on the show last night Louise and she was talking about sort of the competitiveness and like the update injury updates and stuff around the Ireland squad and um, with the World Cup in mind is it in your mind weekly now or yeah, what's your relationship with the thoughts about that at the minute um, yeah like yeah the thoughts about the World Cup are yeah are, are constantly there definitely weekly probably daily at some days to be honest um, it's just yeah it's still this just sense of achievement and excitement and and something you know when you are a footballer as much as you know you go in and you do your hours training it, it is 24/7 it's you know it's down to what you eat it's down to what you do it's how you know how you recover and rest and so you're constantly think, thinking about those things and um you know but for us then it's it's obviously just making sure that we we get into into the february camp and you know have a good camp there get in fit healthy you know get the crew back together um you know, and that's that's what's you know most important for now. But it's uh, yeah, listen, it's it's difficult not to think to the summer and and you know what what hopefully you know could be. You won't be uh, thinking too much on Sunday about <clears throat> Arsenal, Chelsea, and the record attendance. And I'm sure you'll probably pick up on it afterwards, given your connections and interest. I'm sure as well. But uh, humorous for a minute and talk to us a little bit about it, if you will. It's first against second. It's uh, set up brilliantly, really. And and again, the expectation of potentially a record crowd. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. Um, you know, and yeah, I'm good. I'll probably I might only get to see the first few minutes. We have our own game, um, but it's. It is just seems to be, you know, the, the tightest it's been in the league, um, you know, for a long, long time. And it's, you don't know which way it's going to go. I think Arsenal's ability, you know, I think, I think Arsenal, and, you know, maybe sometimes still can have this mental kind of block against Chelsea. But I feel like in the last, you know, 
season or so, they've really started to overcome it. Um, and I think, you know, you, you'll see a really good Arsenal. Um, obviously, missing Viv and Beth is, yeah, it could be detrimental. But I think as well, you know, Arsenal do have a good bit of that depth now. They've made some really, really good signings. Um yeah, so for me, you can obviously see that I'm maybe pushing. I definitely want Arsenal to win the game. I'd love to see them go and and uh, and win the title. But yeah, but then also Chelsea squad depth is you know they really could make two teams you know out, out of that out of that squad to be honest. And um, you know Emma Hayes just always has them has them ticking and and mentally, physically, you know they're always there. So it's a uh, it's just really going to have to come down to potentially who wants it more and then who can really bring out just, you know, their individual kind of skill on the day. It could be it could be luck, but I think it's just gonna have to be yeah, they're gonna have to just put their, you know, total um ability and talent into that game. Was interested to <clears throat> see the news yesterday, Louise, but Eileen Gleason, um being appointed the new head of women and, and girls football by the FEI. I mean her C V speaks for itself, no better person for the job. And then Tom Elms and Andy Holt uh, being made full time as well ahead of the World Cup. Um Really positive moves. Uh, what, what did you make of the news? Yeah, exactly. Just, um, just really positive. It's a, it's a role that's, um, yeah, extremely needed, and what's going to push the game forward. And, and as you say, I think Eileen just has, um, you know, she's had her eyes and ears everywhere. Um, oh, you know, in the last few years in Ireland, she's, she knows the league like the back of her hand. She now knows, you know, how the, t- how the, the international setup is run. So for me. Um, you know she's she's perfectly assigned to that she's you know incredibly te- talent, uh, intelligent and, and talented and really kind of just sees um, you know some of the football world a bit a bit different and can make you know I think she can make a real difference and and obviously for the lads there uh, yeah listen Tom and, and Andy are absolutely brilliant it's completely deserved you know should have you, you know, would have wanted it to happen a long time ago, but they, you know, they've worked so hard. They're brilliant for the team. Um, you know, they do everything and anything for us. So for, you know, that's, uh, it's, it's brilliant for them. It's good to see that focus being put into it as well to the, to the summer because there is the legacy from the World Cup as well. Already there's going to be a legacy from, from yourselves qualifying for the World Cup. But, you know, if you could, if you could even win a couple of games, progress through the group stages, I mean, that's going to do, incalculable things for, for the future of, of women's football and football generally in Ireland. Yeah, and listen, that's the that's the plan. We're not, you know, we're not going into it just to just to take part and make up the numbers. And um, we really feel like we can, you know, get some results. Um and, you know, we we make games very frustrating for teams and um you know and now we know how to we really know how to defend our goal, you know, not conceding um you know, many goals at all in the in the last few games and but now we know how to get ourselves on the on the score sheet as well. So for us it's yeah, it's extremely exciting. We know that we can do something, but we also know it's you know, it's it's gonna be I think, you know, as the time approaches, I feel, you know, the feelings may change a bit, the nerves may kick in a lot more to something that we just haven't experienced before. Um but again I think we've yeah, we've learned a lot in the last, you know, year or two. Um and you know, for us, it's just about, yeah, making sure we stick together and that it's, you know, that past experiences for us, you know, Ukraine game exactly as an example. Um, yeah, it's that's something that we've built on and kind of been 
been able to build our mentality on as well. So, um, yeah, it's going to be tough, but of course we want to we want to change the way women women's football um, is going in Ireland. You need to get out the gap. You're, uh, what sort of a session? You've Sheffield United on Sunday. Are you, is it light enough today, or what are you do? Um, it'll be it'll be a little bit of a mix. It'll be kind of yeah, small small sided stuff. So um, yeah, small, intense, sharp sort of stuff. Centre back getting up the pitch to knock in a few goals as well. But I'm here exactly. Yeah, it's going to be small sided games. You can pass the ball out wide and then run in the box yourself. So <laughs> that's uh, that's the plan. Long way continue, Louise. Thanks a million for jumping on. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks a lot. Louise Quinn, uh, Republic of Ireland and Birmingham City defender. Uh, exciting times, obviously, for her over the course of the season. And I'm um, sure the thoughts of World Cup uh, for Louise and for the other players as well as the season goes on, even from an injury point of view, like there's um, lots of little niggles around. And, yeah. and and even, you know, selfishly from our point, yeah, we need the likes of Louise Quinn fit and healthy. Yeah, when you look at the likes of Arsenal with all the SEL injuries, you don't want you don't want any of that happening. So, touch wood, it doesn't happen. Uh, we'll continue along similar lines because uh, delighted to say, joining us on the line is the Arsenal writer and podcaster from Arsblog, Tim Stillman. Tim, very good morning. How are things? Good morning. Really good, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Very good. Thanks for joining us. Um, it's a big one. We were just chatting to Louise Quinn there about Arsenal-Chelsea this weekend in the, in the Women's Super League. Uh, was it 40,000 tickets were sold as of Tuesday I'm sure it's gone up uh, even more so now uh, mm-hmm. there's a real appetite being whetted by uh, by this game it's a, it's a big one it, it absolutely is and it, it was 42,000 as of Wednesday evening so I imagine right. we're going to hit around the 45,000 uh, mark and that that's going to be the third time this season that a league game gets more than 40,000 tickets sold so that's that's just hugely hugely encouraging I'm not sure I ever thought I'd live to see the day where I'd be able to just kind of casually reel off that sentence but I mean it's an absolutely huge one um, you, you only have to look at the table you only have to look at the table for the last couple of years both teams pretty much identical records if you take out the fact that Chelsea have played one more game and look these games they have an outsized kind of impact on who wins the league it's that simple if one of these teams because uh, both teams have to play each other twice in the second half of the season one of these teams wins both of those games they'll win the league I I do kind of think it's that simple with respect to Manchester United and the challenge they're putting up so it's an enormous game Um, and, and I think also having it on the same day as the North London derby on the men's side not great for my heart and my nerves but but you know quite special it has to be said it'll be a busy day for you for sure like it it only serves to highlight the, the number of ticket sales and the interest in the, in the WSL at the moment um, I was just looking you can see the photograph in front of me here on my, on my screen the uh, the wraparound at the Emirates uh, and, and the mm-hmm. new artwork that's been done around the stadium in North London and you've got the, the Invincible I think it's called Invincible the artwork itself where you've got the men's Invincible Premier League team of, of 03-04 and the, the women's Champions League winning team of 06-07 kind of almost you know holding on to their trophies it's a really really a positive statement and one that that really, as I said, serves to highlight how equal the two teams are in North, in uh, in Arsenal. Yeah, an in, incredible, incredible kind of message. And I was involved in the consultations. There, there are around a hundred or so supporters who were consulted um, around what should be on the wraps, and and I was one of them. And I kind of went into the consultation thinking, right, what what am I going to do? What am I going to bring to this? I'm going to really push for strong representation of the women's team. And honestly, my favourite thing about the whole thing is that I didn't have to, because it was unanimous that that's what people wanted to see. So it wasn't just me who goes to all the women's games and everything like people would just like yep this is 
a big part of the club's history, something we're really proud of, something we want to see on the side of our stadium. And I, I, that's just so positive. This wasn't a like a did act from the club. This wasn't top down. This was decided by the fans that they wanted to see that. And I think that makes a really, really strong statement. And it also just shows you, you know, the last time Arsenal did a kind of stadium wrap design was about 2007, 2008. And it just shows you uh, really how much things have changed since then, because I can't imagine that that was ever part of the conversation in, in 2007, 2008, probably around the time that Arsenal women were the reigning European champions. But now, 15 years later, people are saying, no, we want to see that achievement on the side of our stadium. And, and now the women are playing there more often. And, you know, the club have been very open about the fact that they want that to be um, the case and maybe even the permanent home of Arsenal women one day so just just absolutely incredible and I was, I was at the unveiling event on Wednesday night and spoke to players like Anita Asante and Leanne Sanderson who were part of that quadruple winning team and just asked them you know what would you have said if I if I came back <laughs> kind of from the future 15 years ago and said to you that your face will be really really prominent on the side of the stadium and and they were both you know both just kind of in disbelief, really, um, that something like that would happen. It's especially nice for those players who've perhaps retired, who aren't directly reaping the benefits of this kind of explosion at the moment, but have really, really contributed a lot to it. So it's really nice. It's a really nice touch to see them recognised in this way. One of those, uh, one of those retired players is uh, is Emma Byrne, who does a lot of work with ourselves on the, the Koi Gig podcast mm-hmm. here and on Off the Ball. Um, I saw. Am I right in saying the other night you were given the tough task of picking the all-time Arsenal women's eleven? <laughs> yes. did, did, did Emma manage it's to okay. make it? Of, of course, Emma made it because uh, first of all, th- there wasn't really another candidate, and second of all, I'm slightly scared of Emma. Um, so, <laughs> but but yes, and and the great thing is Emma's on the stadium twice, as as a, quite a lot of the women's players are actually, because there's that quadruple winning design, but there's also a design above the away end where you've got essentially it's meant to be a little bit intimidating so you've got some players from Arsenal's past you've got Martin Keown uh, with his head bandaged up Alex Scott kind of behind a cannon facing out so you know the message there is implied but relatively strong and Emma's on that one as well and and that's a really good choice because uh, Emma can be intimidating as I'm sure you know well, goalkeepers are are all a bit touched, I think, in the head. So, <laughs> fair play to them. But um, I guess Tim, from from our perspective, we're we're already kind of building up to the to the World Cup this summer. And Katie McCabe is someone that comes up in conversation constantly. And uh, for some reason, uh, I guess her best position is often called into question. We're we're trying to work out where exactly on the pitch um, she can best be utilised. In your opinion, where where is Katie McCabe's best position? Yeah, it's someone else I'm slightly scared of. <laughs> but but with Katie, with Katie, it's so strange because she's one of those players who her role for her country and her role for Arsenal are just different because of the, the different ways that the teams have to play. I mean, on Sunday, she's probably going to play on the right wing because um, Beth Mead is injured. I think there was a time for Arsenal where that was her best position. I'm not sure it is anymore. For Arsenal, I think I prefer her at left back. But the thing is, with Katie, whether she plays left back or left wing, it doesn't make a huge amount of difference. She's kind of doing the same things anyway. And and that's enormously to Katie's credit because it's not that easy to go from full back to the wing, you know, when you're making runs from deep compared to when you're getting the ball in very tight spaces and having to dribble past people. And she makes it look very, very easy. But 
so really there's there's not a lot of kind of there's not a lot of difference between her playing on the left wing or at left back for Arsenal but I, we'll see her on the right on Sunday and kind of drift in and play almost more like a like a 10. But she's one of those players. Honestly, I, I think she's great in central midfield as well. She's just one of those players who's got a bit of everything, like a proper all-rounder. Um, but on, on balance, if you really pressed me, I'd probably say left back for Arsenal, but probably for Ireland, left wing back, depending on who Ireland play of course, and whether they play with a back five or a back four. Mm, no doubt we'll have plenty of those conversations between, between now and the World Cup. Um, uh, for the North London, London Derby as well, the small matter, as you mentioned as well, Tim, uh, this weekend, a huge one at half past four on Sunday, live commentary here and off the ball as well. Um, what's the line from the Simpsons? Everything's coming up, Millhouse. Everything's coming up, Mikel Arteta at the moment, I think. Yeah, yeah. You know, the the, the season's just taken us all by surprise. It's It's interesting because last season, even though Arsenal missed out, on their main objective in the most crushing way possible by losing it to Spurs. That that didn't really impact the mood of the fan base. I think we all sensed from last season, wow, something's stirring here, something's happening here. We can see what this team is trying to do and what it can be. But I still don't think... And then, you know, the signing of Gabriel Jesus, we all expected improvement from that because essentially Arsenal played without a striker um, without wishing to be unkind or too unkind. Arsenal played without a striker, in my in my view, for quite a long time last season. And then they got one. And what Zinchenko's done as well and Saliba's done since he's come in, just those three players have just all brought the level up in their respective areas. And it's it, it's been so far, it's been such a great season. But now I think we're all in that kind of, Arsenal fans haven't really wanted to talk about winning the league because it feels so fragile and it feels like if we talk about it, it's you know it's going to kind of blow up in our faces. There's there's still that kind of feeling of tentativeness, but I mean th- this period here is absolutely pivotal for Arsenal. Tottenham, Manchester United, and then they play Manchester City in February. If Arsenal come out of that in good shape, I mean. They, they've got, they've really got a chance, and that's all. That's all we ask for, really, as Arsenal fans. I think. I presume you're also watching whatever city you're doing at the minute, Tim. Whether it's in the the <laughs> cup or the league, and with uh, like a nervousness almost of, you know, maybe they're they're uh, um, not quite the Manchester City that we knew. Yeah, and it's another really interesting one because. They did lose some big players this summer. You know, Raheem Sterling, Gabriel Jesus, Sinchenko. I completely understand the justification for them for selling all of those players. I completely do. But in one go, that's three players who really, really know your system, know how to play. I mean, two of them have come into the Arsenal team and have just transferred Man City football (laughs) into the Arsenal team. And, And I think Sterling, that's a slightly different story. But that's three really big players. And look, they brought in Haaland. So, you know, boohoo um, for them really but I, I do think there is an element of maybe a little bit of transition there maybe them getting used to maybe some players getting used to Pep football to Man City football I, I think the thing is with City I don't look at the big games for them and and think that they'll drop points I, I actually think they're okay in those games you look at who they've been dropping points against Aston Villa Everton Brentford those are the games they've seemed to struggle slightly more in. So, I, yeah, I, I think they've got some tough fixtures. I actually think they'll come out of this period okay. It's how they deal with those kind of mid-table teams who are 
um, both kind of inferior enough to City to go there and, and play with 10 defenders, but also kind of good enough to do it, if that makes sense. Yeah, like you mentioned a couple of the, the acquisitions, Tim, that Arsenal have made from City in, in Jesus and Zinchenko. Mikhailo Mudrik from uh, Shakhtar is the other one that uh, is, is still rumbling on. I think he was available for, for 30 million euros in the summer. Shakhtar want up to upwards of 100 million quid at the moment. Um, by all accounts, sounds like Shakhtar are quite a tough entity to negotiate with as well when it comes to transfers. Is this going to happen, do you think? And, and, and if so, I mean, he, suits, he fits an age profile at only 22, but what do you think he'd bring to that Arsenal setup? Yeah, I, I do think it will happen. I think the player, I mean, I don't think the player has exactly been <laughs> private about his wish to make it happen. Um, his Instagram account has been very entertaining this month. But I mean, I do think it will happen because, and I think Shakhtar know this, Arsenal just need to make it happen. They are, they are one forward short at least. And then, and that was without Gabriel Jesus being injured. Saka and Martinelli have played a lot of minutes this season. Martinelli played the full 90 at Oxford. Like, they don't have depth in those positions, so they need someone. And I'm not sure there's too many plan Bs and plan Cs kicking around. So, you know, fair play to Shakhtar. I think they recognise that. Shakhtar themselves have lost a lot of players recently. Like, Shakhtar have always had a great business model, particularly with Brazilians, and they get paid for their players and, you know, they had, because of the situation that's completely out of their control in the country, they've lost a lot of players on the cheap and some even for free recently. So, you know, this is a payday for them. This is a Ukrainian player they're selling, not a Brazilian player this time. And, yeah, they, they are a tough nut to crack. I think they kind of always have been. Um, I do think it will happen. I, I think basically what he brings, bit of depth in those wide areas. The, the only thing I'm interested in is he's, he's another right footer who plays on the left, and Arsenal have already got two of those, whereas Bukayo Saka is a left footer who plays on the right. And so it would be interesting to see who or what the backup for Bukayo Saka is. But the little I've seen of Mudrik, he is lightning quick on the football. Mm. Like just, he, it looks like, you know, when you see those um, Parthé cinema reels from 1930s football <laughs> sped up, like he looks like that, even with the kind of brill cream haircut. So I, th I think it injects a lot of kind of pace and, and directness and just someone else um, to play on, on those, on those flanks, particularly with the Europa League coming back in March. We're used to seeing other clubs, Tim, get involved in, in transfer, <clears throat> I guess, sagas and entanglements and, and constantly long, drawn-out um, battles to, to, to acquire a signature. It's not a very Arsenal thing and it's not a very Arteta thing, so it's it's quite a rare moment to see this this process play out in front of us when it comes to Mudrick. It's, it's a strange one, actually, because Arsenal have been... I mean, th this one's been even more public, I think, because... I think because the club kind of know they have to sell the player really like this is it, if they don't sell him in January and he doesn't have a very good couple of months. I mean, the, the market's so wild that, like you said, he's kind of gone from 30 million to 100 million in a couple of months could easily go back the other way with a couple of bad months. But I mean, what what has been a feature of Arsenal's transfer business under Arteta is he will push the boat out or rather the club will push the boat out for players he really wants. So. Arsenal didn't really want to go to 50 million for Ben White, but they did it. They didn't really want to go to 35 million for Aaron Ramsdale, but they did it. Like guys who come in and play in the first team, who get in the first 11, Arsenal do tend to pay up. And again, Shakhtar probably know that. Um, but what's interesting here is Mudrik, you know, he's not going to get past Saka. I, you know, he, he's probably not that good. 
um, Martinelli would be more the spot he'd be challenging for. But mm. again, that's that's a big, big. But then in the wide areas, you kind of rotate a little bit more anyway. So it, it this does feel a little. This is a bigger sum, and this does feel a little bit like actually. If we're playing a cup final tomorrow. This guy might not be in the starting eleven, and we're, <laughs> we're going to pay like, you know, upwards of eighty million or so. So I, I think it's I think it's different in that respect. This is a different number to the likes of Ben White and Aaron Ramsdale, mm. and it could be similar to I guess the Casemiro at Manchester thing, where it takes a bit of time yeah. to, to bed in and finally get into that starting eleven. Um, Gabriel Martinelli was one of the names you mentioned there. I was really interested last night. I was reading one of your uh, pieces on Ars Blog on, on Martinelli and his his futsal background. Um, mm. Some people will be familiar with futsal and the, the, you know the indoor soccer with the the heavier football improves the first touch. Uh, I guess heavily played in in Brazil as well. Fascinated to read how how imperative futsal has been to to Martinelli's development as a player, and even how you you write about in your piece. So Martinelli can almost recognise other players with a futsal background simply based on their on their first touch and the way they play the game. Yeah, absolutely. He does that thing. You can the giveaway of a futsal player is they trap that they'll kind of take the ball, they'll trap it under their foot and then roll it forwards. And that's kind of that's a bit of like a matador style because you want to attract the player and then push the ball past him and run. And that's that's a lot of what Martinelli's game is built on right there. Like when he gets the ball, he wants to move. When he doesn't have the ball, he wants to move. He wants to he it's funny, I think he's underrated because he's actually not a particularly elegant player to watch. There's not a lot of stepovers or tricks in there. It is push and run. And actually, the, the player himself says he's incredibly influenced by Cristiano Ronaldo. I think particularly Ronaldo's early career when he was playing on the left. And, you know, Ronaldo cut all of that out of his game and, and eventually became this machine of just kind of taking the quickest route to goal the most direct route to goal as possible. And that's, that's Martinelli plays like every minute is the 89th minute, basically. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that comes from futsal because that's how futsal is. It's a small pitch. You've got players in your face all the time. And, you know, it's a hard court. It's a hard ball. You've got to give it a whack, um, really. You've got to really hit the back of the ball. And it's, it's just so, and, and the toe poke as well. So, Romario was a, another player, big, big futsal player. Mm. And that toe poke finish that we all associate with him, go back and watch Martinelli's goal against Brighton because it's a, it's a Romario finish, it's a futsal finish. Yeah, futsal written all over it. And finally for me, Tim, just to, just to get your prediction then ahead of the North London derby this weekend, it's, it's hard to believe that it was a 3-0 defeat for Arsenal back in May, you know, losing mm. that, that fight in the battle for top four and, and the, the run to the Champions League places. I mean, if, you, if, if you'd said that by the following January, things would be looking this different and Arsenal would be heavy favourites in, in some ways heading into the game mm. this weekend. Um, people would thought you were crazy, but how do you see the game going? Yeah, I mean, we, Arsenal were very injury depleted, particularly in the back line that day. You know, mm. Rob Holding, Cedric, Tommy Asu had to come off. Gabriel got injured and had to come off. I mean... It, it's a very different Arsenal. Um, I think with this one, the first goal is going to dictate everything. I really do, because it's going to be Arsenal doing what they always do, looking to press teams back. Arsenal always try to score quickly, um, which sounds redundant because every team wants to do that. But Arsenal's record of scoring in the first 20 minutes this season is very, very good. And that really allows them to dominate games. Obviously, we know what Tottenham are going to do equally as well. They're going to sit back, try and soak it up and hit Arsenal on the counter. So I think the first goal will have um, an outsized importance. Also, 
um you know please don't think i'm bringing like conspiracy theories or anything into this tottenham get a lot of penalties against arsenal and and like most of them aren't debatable decisions i think the one in may was a very debatable decision but basically arsenal have to try not to give a penalty away because that's made this fixture a lot harder for them in recent years and I think a lot of us are thinking Harry Kane is only one goal off the Tottenham goal scoring or equaling the Tottenham goal scoring record. And, you know, um, that, that feels a little bit ominous and might like we might have to score more than one goal to win the game. I think this will be incredibly tight, but I also think Arsenal are massively overdue a win at Spurs. It's been nearly 10 years. So I'm going to stick my neck out and say that Arsenal are going to do it 2-1. Mm-hmm. I love it. Bit of confidence never hurts. Uh, Tim, great stuff as always. Thanks a million for joining us. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. Brilliant. Tim Stillman there, the Arsenal writer and podcaster with Arsblog. Uh, off the Yaki says a new name for the Darts Netflix series. Says Turlick Turkin, your buddy's back again. Off the Yaki, yeah, not a bad one. Your cousin. Darts, yeah. <laughs> Darts, uh, Darts and Snooker actually lend themselves quite nicely to, to show names. There's there's plenty of puns in there, I think. Mm. Uh, does Raj mean R and R as in rest and relaxation? Wonders Gary Flynn. We're all wondering, Gary Flynn. Well, we still haven't managed to nail that one. No, I, I think it's just a French word, and it has no proper um, translation that's going to satisfy Ronan. Mm. So we're just going to stick with the French. All right. Do keep the comments coming into us. Uh, we've still uh, lots to come on the show with you between now and ten this morning. We're going to talk to actor and broadcaster Simon Delaney. Uh, he's got a brand new show. It's all about Manchester United. It's in uh, the Civic Theatre in Tala on Sunday. And we'll be talking a bit about that and obviously about United as well. And we're also going to speak to the producers of the brand new Netflix docuseries uh, Breakpoint. It's uh, following the game of tennis, as you might have guessed. And uh, that is to come as well. Before all that, time for the papers. Kathleen, good morning to you. Morning, guys. How are you? Good, good, good. Thanks, Billy, for jumping in. Um, let's just sort of go I mean, through. you talked about WSL and Arsenal and the World Cup, so I kind of felt like yeah, it was yeah, only yeah, right yeah, that I'm... Continuity here. Yeah. Coach, yeah. <laughs> um, right, here is the... We'll kick off at the Irish Daily Mirror. Felix the Splat, as in Felix the Housecat. Blue Star, uh, red carded on debut as Chelsea crash again. The City Slackers, Gundogan dig at his own team ahead of Derby. A lack of desire and wrong attitude. I mean, you could say dig, but it's very Roy Keane-style yeah. quote. Geed him up. Sorry, I'm not having Felix the splat at all. That's Really? That's crap. I've, um, heard, I've heard better. Um, bum, bum, bum. And then Ferdinand, jury is still out, and Eric Den Hag as United boss. Ah, I thought the jury had delivered their verdict, and they were fairly happy. Well, it's like I was saying earlier, I think the thing with it is more that he has to actually go on a run. So, yeah. Like, yeah, he's doing great now. That's fair enough. I don't think anyone would doubt that. But, like, he has to sustain it past the rest of the season and into next season and then we'll be like okay yeah actually Hag is a good manager I find it quite ironic that Rio Ferdinand is saying the jury's still out when he was the one on TV who said get the contract out for Ali Solskjaer after one win against PSG I mean make your mind up is the maybe jury- he's just been it's so just- burnt by that now that like anything yeah, yeah. says he's going the total opposite way but it's kind of classic United former player who's now pundit like they just they flip flop so much 100%. they're either totally supportive of a manager one minute or else they're like no we have to get him out or they're else they're old buddies with him and they're like oh no we should give him more of a chance <laughs> cough cough so sure yeah. I'm, I'm not having that at all from, from Rio sorry Rio uh, the Irish Sun this morning uh, reflecting that Fulham game yesterday Ow Felix you're probably a bit happier with that shit are you? No uh, he's still not happy I mean, God well, man you're wearing that jumper to suggest you have any taste in relation <laughs> oh, to uh, Shots fired Your boy Zhao sees uh, red on debut Potter under fire as Blues hit 12 year low and uh, United 
can't uh, United can't buy the best. This is uh, my wife said to me yesterday afternoon. Oh, I see her Canton has said that Man United have uh, um, did not not allowed to get, not able to get the best players anymore. I was like, oh, were you reading an article from like ten years ago? What's, <laughs> what's the story? Yeah. This is not new news. Eric Canton is bizarre. No? <laughs> like, yeah, it's shock, like a shock horror. Time warp. Uh, the Irish Daily Star this morning, Gunslinger, Elka Gundogan has accused Manchester City team of the lack of desire. Uh, Rio says the jury's out. More reflections there as well on um, the Fulham-Chelsea game. And an interesting article here, <clears throat> uh, Mick Scully, uh, writing that the Clarets bid for Oba has been rejected. So Michael Obafemi um, remains a Swansea player after Burnley's latest attempt to sign the Ireland striker was rejected. It's been a bit of a saga for him, you'd have to say. They've mm-hmm. offered two and a half million quid. Uh, to get him out of there and uh, reading the quotes of Martin Russell his current manager who it seemed as if the relationship was not all that rosy he says everything's just fine I love the lad he said at some point or another which um, you know you take it you take it as red um, and you know we've knocked back two bids uh, back for Michael um, and basically they want to get more money for him and they will then when's his actual contract up like the one he has at the moment is there um, I don't know they uh, they had offers from last summer. I don't know what yeah, the, the duration of his contract is, but um, he's clearly not happy. There's something about him that they're clearly not happy with. Apparently it's summer of 2024, his contract runs to its Swansea. Like, Burnley would be a, a, top, a top of the championship, looks like they're going to get promoted. Vincent Company at the helm would be a good one. Mm-hmm. Francie Brady says in the comments, Shane's not having anything this morning, but there's one actually in the front of the star. Where is it? Felix the Brat, as Blues lose again. That's actually a slight bit better. Francie Brady, of course, another one of your relations. I actually, do, I, I'm, I'm not familiar <coughs> with Francie Brady. Yeah. <laughs> Those sound like a bit of a Monaghan name there. It's a Cavan name, Brady, actually. <coughs> and uh, uh, Fergus Q also suggesting that we should have asked Roger to pronounce Nola great as uh, he'd probably have done a better job than Cameron. Uh, Cameron, Cameron did okay. Fair, uh, fair observation. Uh, the Irish Daily Mail, meanwhile, uh, show respect. Marsh tells Leeds fans to change chant. Uh, Ciao, Felix. Ah, that's good. You having that? I'll have that. That's probably the best. That's actually the best. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Ciao, Felix. Um, Brilliant. Um, He's not Italian. It would have been better if he was Italian, but still. That uh, horror (laughs) tackle, as it's uh, described here, as you saw read. And then Connacht GA hit out at disgusting coverage, uh, writes Michael Clifford. Connacht Secretary John Prenti has described media reaction to his province of senior football championship draws disgusting. And there's been some reaction to it in this show as well. It's the fact that you have uh, Division 4 teams, Sligo, Leitrim, London and New York, all on one side of the draw, and then you have like realistic All-Ireland title contenders all bunched mm. on the other side of the draw What's I mean I don't, I, the, the disgusting nature to it I haven't seen um, maybe some of that exists out there I think it's fair enough to be critical of <clears throat> kind of a weird draw well, like I'm not as a Sligo person not particularly looking forward to it if we do go on a run it, like it's not fun watching your team get absolutely hammered and I was kind of happy enough when the Telton Cup came in and I was like oh this could be a good way of you know actually like growing the game in Sligo if yeah. we manage to go on a run somewhere like that you know I'm very unlucky in that the majority of the teams I support are not very good a lot of the time. It's changing slightly this season. Oh, yeah. Arsenal and Down, both on the way up. Well, see, this is the thing. Like, the last time I remember enjoying GA success was 2010, Down. I went to the semi-final against Kildare with my dad, and my dad left me at home for the final, which I have never let him forget. And I had to watch with people who don't really like GA or just, like, didn't really know what was happening. And they were talking about like, oh, there's like an 80 yard free and all this sort of stuff. And I was just sitting there being like, please let this end. Um, so yeah, I've never let my dad forget that he left me behind. And now I'm saying it on national radio as well. So everyone knows how much he betrayed me. But like, I remember getting such a buzz off that. And I've never really had that first I go. And I 
was hopeful that having something like the Talton Cup would mean that you could have success because I think when you're when you're from a smaller county and maybe a county that doesn't have that same sort of footballing success, you're not looking to win the All Ireland. You know, you're not looking to go head to head with the top counties in the country. You just want to have a bit of crack and a bit of fun and enjoy your football and not turn up to every match knowing that you're going to get absolutely whacked. So that's the thing that really frustrates me about this because they had so many solutions that they could have put in place so that this happened less and less and they could have like grown the game and developed the game more in those smaller counties and then maybe down the line there would have been an opportunity for them to like we don't know Sligo's a big hurling county these days you know it's developed so well over the last couple of years and that's because the work has been put into it and there are separate competitions you can compete in and kind of you know build people's loves for it because like as well kids aren't going to want to start playing GA and be like county players if they know they're getting trashed in Connacht finals and in All-Ireland draws every year I do definitely buy some of the like it's nice to get to a provincial final and I've been that soldier uh, a lot of times over the last 15-20 years where the pleasure of winning the uh, provincial semi-final with the reward being a guaranteed thumping at the hands of Dublin is yeah. is nobody's idea of a great day out. Um, so uh, there's probably a bit of folly about that. Um, it's short-lived and, you know, there's a great... You get to tap into... I always talk about the elitism of GA, Kathleen, and the, the mm. you know, three or four or five counties that get to enjoy the spoils at the top and how much we uh, spend so much of our time talking about that at the expense of all the rest of us poor soldiers. Well, you could just do what I do, just like saunter on into a unbelievable winning club and uh, uh, yeah. a super club I, I think super the club, term yeah. is a club that are super yeah absolutely <laughs> I bought my tickets actually yesterday for uh, Sunday week so I'm ready for action it's the club final they'll be handy enough God will they yeah they will be sure. um, ah, they will yeah no they will yeah they will yeah. Yeah, yeah. well you want to be obviously I wanted to get my tickets amongst my own people of course so, um, I'm going to have my I, I might go as well and have the Malachy O'Rourke sign I was actually thinking of <laughs> going as well just I want to see Malachy O'Rourke in action after Shane waxing lyrical about him for the last I'd few I'd say months. even Malachy O'Rourke is a bit surprised about him <laughs> well he, he had seen the clips waxing. he had seen the clips he yeah. came on with us and, and you know he, <laughs> he had seen me profess my love for the man so uh, look I've met him a few I'm going times to go with my Malachy O'Rourke sign <laughs> <laughs> I don't quite have one, but I'll make one up for sure, 100. Mm. The uh, yeah, the FPD League is something something that's got me a little bit concerned about the kind of championship this year. Albeit, it would be lovely, to, you know, for the Sligo players or the Leitrim players to make a provincial final. You just don't want to see an absolute hockeying. Now, the FPD League doesn't mean anything. There's it's preseason competition, of course, we know that. But uh, this scoreline had uh, had completely passed me by Roscommon and Leitrim last week. Roscommon seven goals and 16 points. Leitrim seven points. I had I had completely missed that. So, like mm. seven goals. Russ Common scored and Leitrim scored seven points. Do you know, it's it, pretty depressing. It's, it's <laughs> remarkably one-sided. Yeah, and like, look at uh, you would feel with the FBD league that result could just as handily be in the other way around. You know, as, no, as in I don't know how much you want to read necessarily. Look at I, I, I do take the point. It could end up being that in the kind of final is the danger. Well, yeah, you wouldn't be you wouldn't be surprised. Now, obviously, the gap you'd imagine will be a bit closer, but it only serves to highlight the. Yeah. the one-sided nature of the Connacht Championship you've got the three teams and then a massive fall-off in some ways that's not to say that one of them can't mount somewhat of a challenge I, I, I would love if we could fun. change the structure so that the other three provinces were a bit more equal and we could just keep Ulster the way it is because yeah, no. <laughs> the my main reason for not wanting to get rid of the provincial championships is I just enjoy Ulster too much and I love how competitive it generally is and you know the matches are just so fun to watch and you know generally when it gets to the final you're probably going to have a bit of a competition compared to any of the other provinces really yeah yeah you just don't get it like 
The Irish Times this morning. Delan thriving at La Rochelle after switching from Connacht. This is ahead of the Ulster game. Obviously, tomorrow we're talking to Ronan McGarry a bit about earlier on. Interesting uh, chat with John O'Sullivan there about how his mum wanted to play in France. His uh, dad is uh, French and he came to live in Ireland very young, uh, but is back now playing uh, there. Uh, slow burner Keenan aiming for Leinster Landmark as he racks up uh, 50 caps this weekend. And a thought piece from Johnny Watterson as well. Whole new ball game here. Uh, the many lives of a one troubled Ronnie O'Sullivan which mm. I uh, picked through earlier on and uh, it's a good read it's very uh, thoughtful he's obviously been uh, dumped I think when you get beaten at these tournaments there's no other way to say it than dumped, dumped out, out of the UK Masters yeah like uh, Mark I mean, Williams and the Masters tournament is one that, that Ronnie has was won I think it's seven times it's an, it's an Ali Pali for the last decade so Ronnie loves that atmosphere it's raucous um, he went 3-0 up against Williams yesterday and then 4-2 up and Williams came back to win 6-5 in a decider first time he's beaten him in eight years um, two of the class of 92 but yeah Ronnie is just one of those sports people isn't he that uh, fascinates everyone I think Ronan McGarry mentioned him a few weeks ago with ourselves and uh, like he has pinpointed the work he's done with Steve Peters the uh, the psychologist who wrote that great book The uh, the Chimp Paradox um, and, and snooker is such a mental sport that you have to have that aspect of your game and your life completely sewn up the way you, you said strong. mental sport there I thought you meant like as in, it's hectic and there's so much going on. And I was like, that's not the word I would use. Oh. <laughs> but, but, but what I mean is, I guess when you, you sometimes have to sit there in the chair and watch your opponents clear up and there's nothing you can... It's not like, um, you know, football or, or team sport where you can actually do something about it. You just have to sit there and hope that they miss. Mm. And that's mentally draining at the best of times. Um, so you're almost More like just, golf or something. Yeah, exactly. You, you, but at least with golf, you can control your own game. Mm. And I, I suppose it's the same with snooker. Once you're on, at the table... But unlike golf, you're you're waiting for the you're waiting for the moment at which you can get on the table and do some damage. So yeah, Ronnie's such a fascinating character. The Irish Examiner, uh, People Power, Ronan Agar and the value of connection with supporters. So that's uh, Ronan's uh, think piece inside about how they really can be the 16th man. It definitely, if you're sort of on the fence about the value of fans, it's definitely a really good insight into the impact that they can have. And um, Mars Brosnan has been over to chat with uh, the Irish players at uh, Tranmere. And um, it's a lengthy piece that I have to admit, I haven't yet had the chance to have read on, but it certainly looks um, like something I get my teeth into later on. That's fascinating. Raj on, on fans like do you think do you think fans have an impact like Roy Keane is one of these people who anytime you talk about fans having an impact on the outcome of a match he's like ah are the fans on the pitch are they doing the work N- I think you all. saw during Covid that it might depend on the team or the sport but it does make a, a massive difference like there were so many of those matches during Covid where every, like the teams just look a bit flat and the away teams were getting more results than ordinarily they would have yeah exactly so it clearly does have some impact whether it's like subconsciously or something on players yeah. and just with general enjoyment like I don't know how much of when you're on the pitch are you actually listening to the crowd and thinking you know oh it's great to hear the chants or it's great to hear this but I think when there's like a big moment teams definitely do feel that swell behind them you know you go from a goal down to two goals up and you have that swell of the crowd behind you you see the team starting to perform well you can see them almost like lean into it a little bit more and lean into the enjoyment of it mm. so I do think it does make a difference somewhere yeah go on no I mean look, I, I don't know that's the uh, we don't <laughs> like, know because do we haven't been at the pitch in front of you know Shane yeah. but you know even that. yourself like I'm sure you've played like football or whatever it was and you hear the supporters on the sideline and it does give you a boost whether yeah, it's yeah. like 100 people 20 people or 80,000 like obviously 80,000 people is going to give you a bit more of a boost and you're going to hear it a bit more but I think you know you've probably played 
club games or something at some stage. Shane, I know you're still out yep. there on the field. How many would you get a man in town? Man United? Man in town matches, town, yeah. yeah. Man in town or another team in the, in the league, actually. <clears> a bit of a rivalry there. Eh, I, like, it wouldn't be a massive, it wouldn't be a massive crowd You'd be, if you got, if you got 50 or 60 people at a match. All right. You'd be doing all right. How did uh, you get on against Cavan yesterday? It's an nil nil win. Huh? We're, we're we're close to the top. Of, we're close to the top of the table. We're there are a lot of no things that confuse me. <laughs> yeah. Shane, There's a few rivalries there, but that that's that's. I'm enjoying Shane this week. Shane is in his cheeky moods this week. No, 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 no. Yeah, well, you know when you're up the top of the table and, and you're away from home and you, you just want to get. It a, sounds like a bit a of a striker point. issue there. That's uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just sometimes you have to do defensive duties. I got it wrong. It wasn't the FBD league. It was hurling that Roscommon beat Leitrim. Ah, right. Okay. So seven twenty one to or seven. Ah, well, let's let's strike that conversation from the record. It makes it does make more of sense. That was more of a hurling. I. I was thinking we surely would have heard something or there would have yeah, been some yeah. I was like, this totally it. passed me by. There's a reason it passed me by. Because it didn't um, happen. He just talks about, like, look, at I, I, as I said, uh, who knows about this stuff, but you listen to the people who've been there and uh, Roland's obviously been there. He says about uh, over Christmas calling out the La Rochelle faithful and they've, like, sold out the uh, Stade Marcel uh, for, like, I don't know, a number of games in a row. Yeah. But it's a lot. Uh, 16,000 people uh, paying in every week. Um he said that he called them out for being asleep in their top 14 defeat at home to the rivals Bordeaux Bagley and he like he's really thoughtful about it as a thing it's not like um, he talks about a you know uh, players are not automatons they're never precisely the same emotional pitch at any moment of the day much less at precisely 3.15 on a Saturday human emotions are not a linear thing when the team is on its knees it's at that moment that they need an extra lift from the crowd and he goes on to expand on that and also how the fans are not automatons but it's just an interesting view on something that I would be slightly more cynical about it probably more in the Roy Keane camp of how much you know it does obviously create an amazing atmosphere when you've 40, 80,000 people in a stadium but you know well, how much impact does it specifically have in the outcome if you look the fans out of Craven College last night would the result have been the same I know there's no way of us, t- of us telling but it was fairly raucous uh, as Fulham beat Chelsea last night and mm. who's to say that it wouldn't have been reversed completely if, if uh, there had been no fans or more Chelsea fans for that matter Well I think the point you made earlier is literally the most factual thing we can point to to say that it does actually make a difference is the Covid the fact that like more teams that were playing away won during that time Yeah You know you can't really Scientific study essentially over Covid Yeah And didn't Liverpool have some like some of their worst results yeah. at Anfield as well because and like, people put it down to the fans not being there their form this year might yeah, <laughs> that's right. they were heading that's a different right. way already right. but you know <clears> just like clubs like that that have very iconic fans the fact that they suffered and, like I used to watch when I was working at ESPN at the time and I watched like quite a lot of Bundesliga and their fans are just incredible like it's so it's more it's almost more fun sometimes watching what the fans are up to than the actual football on the pitch and it was just such a different feeling watching it you know it just didn't feel like the Bundesliga it didn't feel like that real German passion that they put behind every single game and when the first few games that I watched with fans back there was probably like 50% capacity mm. even at that you were like okay this this is such a difference I actually didn't realise at the time how much it was missed As I know that's a viewing experience but you could just see even the players they just looked more energetic they looked more up for it there's two stories that we want to touch on in the papers before we um, wrap and uh, chat with Simon Delaney. Uh, one of them from the Irish Independent, um, and it's Sinead Kassan, and uh, pointing out that the Ireland rugby, st- uh, rugby team are going to change colour shorts to navy uh, from next season to alleviate player concerns about wearing traditional white shorts when having their periods. And as she says, it's a move that's reflective of a growing trend in women's sport. A lot of teams are jumping on board with it now. Um, and you would think that once they'd sort of made the decision this is great um, 
<laughs> Let's go for it. Uh, backlogs in production, apparently, mean that they can't do it this year, that the shorts literally can't be produced in time, so they have to wait until it uh, won't be in place for this year, Six Nations. But no, nevertheless, very positive move. Mm. That was interesting as well in Sinead's article. She was saying that the English FA have also approached FIFA about changing the white shorts for the World Cup this summer. And I don't like, I just feel like the all white English kit is probably one of the most iconic ones. And I'm just yeah. interesting to see like how fans react to it. Like I know in terms of the general people who probably watch the World Cup and stuff, this is pretty normal now in terms of teams changing their shorts from white to a darker color. Bush. I am. I'm interested to see how the, what the general reaction from the England fan group is. It is so good though. Like I remember when I played football, like we'd play in white shorts and like the absolute dread whenever you'd be on your period. And like there were time. I remember there was one time like that I did bleed through my shorts, and the opposition were like mocking you for it, and like the fans on the side were mocking you for it, and. You know, if you're playing a game, you don't necessarily have the option to run off in the middle of the match and be like, I'm just going to do a quick change, guys. I'll be back. Um, And it's something Leah Williamson talked about. She suffers from endometriosis. And, you know, the fact that when you're in the middle of the game, there are so little, so few outs for you so that if you have the opportunity to make it a little bit easier for yourself and have one less thing on your brain that you have to think about, why wouldn't you just go for it? So, yeah, no, it is great to see that Irish team doing this, although it is going to be weird watching them play in navy shorts. Um, I would have thought there'd been a bit more solidarity, by the way, than, like, whatever about the fans, and that is bad enough, but, like, opposition or whatever. I mean, I would have thought... um, Not at all. Like, people, I mean... (laughs) I know people have a certain view of like women's sports and stuff, but some of the like the sledging is horrendous. Some of the stuff that gets said on the pitch. I, I remember a friend of mine uh, broke her arm, and it was on the pitch, and like it was just a bad tackle. It wasn't any malice behind it, but the stuff the fans were saying to her was just awful. So yeah, no, you get sledged for that sort of stuff all the time. Or even if you're unlike me, if you didn't actually read through, if you, they would just make random jokes about the period appearances. It's not really talked about all that much, and I wonder maybe is it the same in the higher echelons? I presume it is, oh, but yeah. I knew when I was playing yeah. club football, people people were vicious. <laughs> well, the more that we sort of talk about in the Joe Marler conversations, even from last weekend, just, uh, mm. makes it a bit sort of uh, less acceptable to do it then. The other thing that we just wanted to mention was uh, so Martin Ziegler has it in the Times this morning, London Times this morning, TV crews told Film Infantino. Now, like, it, on the face of it, it's quite a salacious story. It is obviously very has become a somewhat controversial character has he? Probably has. Dino, oh for sure um, and this was a directive that was given to a Swiss company that were the effectively the host broadcaster who would supply these um, pictures and whatever else to the various broadcasters around the world and yeah so there was an um, email sent out to say please do capture Infantino when he's at these games he went to every single match at the World Cup he was at every single match at the World Cup for at least uh, some time which I think is probably the most egregious the first two minutes to, at least like it was just a pure optics thing I'll be there they'll catch me on camera but while you're catching me on camera don't ever catch me on the phone he was generally shown at the start or the end of matches as well wasn't yeah. he <laughs> There was, and there was apparently some director who did manage at some point to catch him mm. while he was on the phone and admonished was what it says here. But yeah, and then there was other stuff like don't film when he's with a shake, don't film them from below the knees because there was some sort of cultural sensitivity. That's fair enough. I think that makes uh, makes a bit of sense. Um, but yeah, and they, then they would also show him <clears throat> on TV but not on the big screen in the stadium because he was getting roundly booed or whatever. There was one sort of paragraph that stood out for me here that I thought was sort of a side note to the article almost, but maybe speaks more to the point that's trying to be made 
more than the specifics of the, the TV directors. Mm-hmm. Uh, they talked about the host broadcaster company. HBS is based in Zug, Switzerland and is a specialist host broadcast organization that was set up initially to produce FIFA World Cups in 2002 and 2006. It now covers many large sports events. It's a subsidiary of Infront, which was taken over by China's Wanda Group in 2015. Wanda is also a FIFA sponsor. So if you've stayed with all of that, that, for me, deserves more conversation and more digging. Um, Slightly unusual, very unusual. uh, um, FIFA basically paying itself to produce its own... Wouldn't be like FIFA. No, I mean, whatever about him being on the phone at the, at the matches. He was certainly on the phone at, at Pele's funeral, taking selfies near the body as yeah. well. So, mm. as we say in Monon, he's a, he's a dose of shite, hey? <laughs> <laughs> he's just one of those people that he keeps cropping up in, in these negative stories. You're like, Jesus, would you ever just yeah. get out of here? Yeah. And, like, look, he probably, I'm sure, had something to do with that, but obviously there's communications people and PR yeah. people and all that sort of stuff, too. Of course. Uh, that is the papers. All right, it's uh, quarter past nine. Do keep the comments coming into us, whatever it is that you are uh, watching us this morning. We still are going to um, have a tennis chat to come for you. We're going to be talking to the producers of the brand new Netflix documentary, which dropped this morning. Uh, Breakpoint. Breakpoint. I have to always <laughs> think about that one in my head. Is that, that point break. Yeah. Uh, so that's coming your way in about 15 minutes time. Before all of that, Simon Delaney, welcome back to the show. Morning. How are we? How are you getting on? Yeah, very good. You're a bit better than the last time we were chatting to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been a bit of a, a different six months for United, all right, this time. And, I meant more and, from a, a health point of view from your side. You're feeling a bit... Uh, yeah, oh, you're, yes, I had the lurgy, yes. Yeah, well, I've, I've rid myself of that and I'm back amongst the community back. now, thank God. Well, uh, and we need to get on to how great United are at the minute, of course. Tell us, first of all, the Civic Theatre, uh, Sunday, it's in Tala. What's happening? Yeah, so we've got uh, the Red Devils Road Show, which is a show that I put together with uh, football journalist Tom McDermott, who's uh, Manchester base. has been covering United for years. We've been pals for years. And um, we came uh, up with this notion about six months ago. And lucky enough, we didn't put the show on six months ago because I think it would have been a very different vibe in the theatre tomorrow if we had. Mm. But uh, the idea was that it was a group, we could put together a group therapy session for United fans because I have a WhatsApp group with them. Um, various, excuse me, United fans, the celebs and mates and that innocent. Over the last sort of six, seven years that the group's been running, it has been the therapy group. Uh, so we decided we we might try and share that with the rest of the United fans out there. So we put together this two-hour show. We've got former players coming on. We've got uh, Al Foran, a uh, big United fan. He's going to be on the show too. And then we're going to talk about... You know what? One thing that I wanted to talk about, Adrian, was the connection between United and Ireland. <clears throat> you know, why does a club in the northwest of England have such a big support here? And we look at that. And I was lucky enough a couple of years ago to do a documentary for MUTV, which looked into that question. So we're going to be talking about that. We're going to pick our best uh, all-time United 11s. We're going to pick our worst all-time United eleven. Uh, we're going to ask the audience to do the same. We're going to have a and a with the audience, talk about the current situation, the current crop, the players, the transfer market, which, of course, is open. And, of course, we're on the day after the Manchester Derby. So yeah. we'll see celebrate. how that goes. <laughs> I, I think we could be. I what, think we could what, be. Before, before we go down that path, what was your major conclusion about the Irish connection? Was it to do with the... Giles and the pre-Giles, the player side, was it a success or what was your conclusion on it? It's, it's, it's a lot of things. I mean, I, I toured around Ireland and the UK interviewing various people for the, for that documentary and, you know, it opened my eyes as a United fan to, you know, 
<laughs> like a lot of United fans don't don't think football existed before 1992, which of course it did. Um, but it was things like the Munich air disaster, um, <clears throat> you know, which obviously had some Irish involvement in that. Liam Whelan uh, was one of the players who was killed. He scored 52 goals uh, in the season before the Munich air disaster. He was quite the player. Um, and his funeral uh, back in Dublin, there were, I think it was 300,000 people on the streets. Uh, you know, th- that kind of connection. Then it goes back to emigration as well. You know, when the Irish left here, they went to London, to Liverpool, to Manchester, uh, and a lot of the uh, Irish <clears throat> ended up working on the railways in Manchester. And the Lancashire uh, Railways had a football team, which then became Newton Heath, which then became Manchester United. So they've had support right the way through and and one of the other things I did in the show was I tried to come up with a United made up exclusively of Irish players <laughs> that was my challenge and uh, I did and I picked a United team made up ex- solely of of, United, of Irish players and it's a team that could win the World Cup and let alone win the Premier League it's a super team um, but we went back and discovered that the first player who played for United which was back in the late 1890s, a guy called John Pedden from Belfast. Uh, it was a fascinating look at why the connection is so strong between United and Ireland. So we're going to be talking about that, as well as the current state of the club. If you need to grab a drink of water, by the way, go for it. I've just done the same thing myself here. I have my cup of tea. You have your cup good of tea, man. Good, good man. Um, uh, do you have that team in front of you? <clears throat> the United Irish yeah, 11? Yeah. I can probably remember off by heart. It's Harry Gregg in goal. Uh, Moran and McGrath, centre half, uh, right back Dennis Irwin, left back uh, Tony Dunn, and then a three man midfield of Keane, Sammy McElroy, and uh, Norman Whiteside, and up front then George Best and Frank Stapleton. It's not a bad team, is it? Oh, oh my God. <laughs> Who are we leaving on the cutting room floor? That's off There's the charts. There's a lot of people on the John bench. Is on the bench. John, John O'Shea. O'Shea. Um, John goals, even as a sub for Harry exactly, Gray, maybe. Yeah, exactly. There's a rake of players on the bench, That's but right. it was a serious team. And the great thing about doing the documentary was that. I went and I was able I met my heroes like I interviewed Paul McGrath and Kevin Moran and, and, and Norman Whiteside actually was the best one because I, I started the interview with Norman Whiteside by saying Norman the first time I ever cut somebody's photograph out of a newspaper and stuck it in a scrapbook it was his and like, I, I remember the exact moment he, he scored in the semi-final of the FA Cup against Arsenal a cracking left foot of volley uh, I think 83 I think it was and he was my he was my man he was my player and uh, so getting to meet him and chat to him about being in the dressing room and and also talking to Paul McGrath about the the importance of having other Irish voices in the dressing room when he went over you know um, as he said he was so enamoured and in awe of just the the physical size of Old Trafford and he said, I remember walking in the dressing room and seeing Brian Robson and thinking, oh, Jesus Christ, it's Brian Robson. And, and he said, and he shared digs with Norman White. And he said they didn't always get on because, as he said himself, they were both from different political sides of the tracks. But he said, we eventually became great mates. Um, but he said that was important for him to have that other Irish voice in the dressing room to help him settle in. It's, it might seem like an obvious thing to say, Simon, but even when, <clears> you know, on match days at Old Trafford, uh, and it's the same for Liverpool and other clubs as well, yeah. but to, the, the Irish influence, it cannot be understated how many Irish fans are over there in the pubs and, and as yeah. we said it before games, it's quite incredible. 
it is incredible, and it goes. It's the same for Leeds as well. You go to the airport any weekend, you'll see that that makeup of Leeds jerseys, United jerseys, uh, you know, Liverpool jerseys. It is quite staggering, and it all goes back to the same thing. It goes back to emigration, to Irish families going over there, and then it helps them when there's Irish players at the club. I mean, United have always had a strong Irish connection, not not so much in the recent years, but there's always been a huge uh, Irish influence at the club in terms of the players. And when you're seeing Eamon Dunphy he talks about it in the documentary, he talks about you know, United fans their connection with Liam Whelan or Billy Whelan as he was known, you know, he said when you're seeing a fella from your area playing for Manchester United mm. you know, it just connects you straight away to it you know, uh, but yeah absolutely the airport's packed with the various different jerseys on Saturday mornings, it's incredible. And it's like I know some some people who are, who are strictly fans of the League of Ireland and, and don't uh, touch on any teams over in England Sometimes get annoyed and they're like, "But oh, Jesus, could you not support yeah. the, the team local team?" But there are mm. there's a, such a, a massive cohort of fans now who do support their local League of Ireland team <clears> and also <throat> head over to to England for these matches as well, Simon. Of course, there are. I mean, I mean, and I mean, my interest in football started with the League of Ireland. My father was a, from Cabaret. He was a big Bowes fan. I, for some reason, ended up as a Shells fan. I can't remember why or how. Probably because my dad was a Bowes fan. <laughs> but yeah. uh, I remember going to Daly Mount and watching the derbies up there, and you know, being lifted over the turnstile because you were too small to push through them yourself and all that. So, you know, the League of Ireland absolutely started my interest, and I still keep an eye on Shells results, etc. But look, just because you know that argument does my head in when you see it on Twitter, you know, I bet you've never been to a League of Ireland game. Well, you know, I've never been to a basketball game either. It doesn't mean I don't have, I can't like basketball. You know what I mean? I've never, I, I watch American football. I've never been to an American football game. You're allowed to be a fan of these sports. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'd be with you. I'd be with you on that one for sure. Come here, D, you mentioned the Manchester yeah. Derby, so I have to have it at Old Trafford tomorrow. And, um, yeah. Rio Ferdinand, I'm sorry, I had to do a double take this morning in some of the papers. He's saying that the jury is still out on Eric Ten Hag. <sighs> now, the jury will be yeah. back, obviously, if they get the win tomorrow. But it sort of felt to me as if the jury was already back and they were pretty happy. Yeah, no, and I, I saw you, Shane, mention the whole thing of, you know, put the contract on the table, you know, I mean, it's a bit rich, Rio, coming from it. The jury's not still out, uh, and, and I'm, I'm saying that as a United fan and as someone who talks to United fans all the time, he is the man for the job. There's no question about it. When you've gone one defeat, I think, in 19, now since the last Manchester derby, he's, uh, I think he's turned... Uh, the club around and I don't mean that we're now going to be champions in the next 10 years that's not what I mean what I mean is he's turned the attitude around he's turned the dressing room around he's got rid of most of the toxicity that was in that dressing room there's still a little bit there I think but you know I think what we can all see is that he's the change in the attitude towards discipline and attitude. Uh, you know, you turn up late for a meeting. He had it with Garnacho, uh, you know, last year. He did it. To, he, he dropped him. Rashford did the same thing. He dropped Rashford. And I like that. I remember Fergie did that back in the day with Beckham. If you remember the famous night that Beckham came out of the nightclub in London wearing the sarong. Do you remember that? <laughs> and I think they had a Champions League quarterfinal the next day at Old Trafford. And he didn't just drop him. But he made him come to the ground and sit in the stands and watch the game. Now, these that, they were back in the days when United were so strong, he could leave Beckham out. But, you know, that discipline was there. Now, Fergie had his, you know, falling, falling out with various different players and coaching staff over the years. That comes with that, I think. It's the same with Roy Keane. It's that attitude. It comes with that. And I think Ten Hag has absolutely changed that, that attitude and that atmosphere and he's changed the style of football um, and we're certainly in a better place tomorrow going into the Manchester Derby than we were going into the last one. Um, 
I would be confident, particularly because City are they're not firing all cylinders, you know. Um, so I, and the fact that it's all at Old Trafford, I, I fancy us tomorrow. Yeah, hopefully. That attitude question, Simon, is is, is a big one. I think because <clears throat> even the, the battle with Cristiano Ronaldo, I mean, Ten Hag yeah. came out came out far better uh, than, than Ronaldo did certainly from that. And even Andy Mitten was on with us during the week, and he was talking about the fact that you know under maybe Louis Van Gaal, it was. If a player was 20, 30 seconds late for a meeting, there was, there was big fines. And it's not yeah. that strict. But at the same mm. time, he's, he's laying down the law in a very simple way. Just break the rules and, and you'll be dropped. And look, he took Rashford on in that game and he ends up yeah, the winner. So exactly. It, and, and, and it leads to everything else, Shane. You know, it's, it, it's all about attitude. Mm. The, the, and that, that also leads into the type of player that he wants at that club. He wants players who are going to work, who are physically able to do what he wants them to do. And will do a job for him and do a job for their teammates. He doesn't want show ponies. He doesn't want prima donnas. Clearly, he doesn't. Um, and I think that leads in that will inform the transfer windows over the next eighteen, twenty-four months as, as to what type of player that come in. Yes, the transfer budget will inform that as well. But I think Ten Hag is very clear on what type of player he wants to bring in. And you hear every manager saying that, and I have a pain in my arse listening to that. Well, we'll only get the right we'll only get the right player. The player has to be right for us. What does that mean? Uh, what does that mean? You know, you know, we're not just gonna buy someone willy nilly. Well obviously you're not. I mean that's you know, we only want the player who'll fit into what we need to to work in here. I don't get that, but I think it informs those discipline those disciplinary attitudes, though everything leads into a culture at the club. Because there's no doubt about it, the culture over the previous six years, five, six years, was rotten from top to bottom. Now, we've still got the issue of um, our lovely absentee parasitic owners who are still uh, sunbathing in Florida. Um, But we're going to talk about that on Sunday as well, because Tom, my co-host, is fairly well connected in terms of what's happening with the sale. How likely is it? How soon is it going to happen? Who's it going to be? Who's going to buy us? Because that, again, above anything else, will influence them where we go over the next two to five years. What did you make of the uh, the Vaudeville horse signing? Sounds like he has to be (coughs) registered by by noon today, I think, to play tomorrow, which you imagine will be. It's it's an interesting one. It is an interesting one, and we were we were talking about that in the WhatsApp group, you know. And a striker is a striker is a striker, um, and we need bodies. We need warm bodies. You know, we've got a huge fixture congestion pileup coming. We're, we've got big games in the league. We've got the small matter of a quarter final uh, against Barca in the Europa League. We've, we're still in two cup competitions, so he needs bodies. He can't be relying on Rashford and um, the most miserable football in the world, Martial, um, to to keep the, keep that going. I mean, back in the heyday, you know, when Fergie was at his pump, he had four strikers. He had Colin York, Sheringham, Solskjaer, and he rotated them throughout the season. And that's how you handle that fixture congestion. I think Veghorst will come in and do a job. Six foot six. His stats are very impressive. Um, a goal every two games in Germany. Didn't do it at Burnley, but he was surrounded by Drek at Burnley, and they went down. Um, he his pressing stats. No, I I don't go in for all that harsh shit about stats and expected goal. Oh Jesus Christ! That gives me <laughs> that gives me a pain behind me left eye when I see that stack up. I don't know what it means. Like, and my fourteen year old says to me, "Is United mad? What's that mean, Dad?" I said, "I haven't got a baldy, not a clue." Um, but Veghorst's stats, uh, his pressing stats are incredible, and again, that goes back to. That's the type of player that Ten Hag wants. He wants someone's going to come in and work his nuts off running up and down that pitch. And at six foot six, 
he's going to be a dangerous set of pieces, and we all saw that at the World Cup uh, against Argentina. So I think he'll come in, and I think he'll score goals. Listen, he might light the place up, but if he scores a half a dozen goals, important goals for us over the next six months, happy days. And he's costing you no money. Mm-hmm. It's it's a no brainer for me. Wave goodbye to him in the next window. Um, what <laughs> what about what about um, so obviously in terms of the game tomorrow? Obviously looking at City over the last while, and we were chatting yeah. to an Arsenal reporter earlier on about the anticipation of watching City at the minute because it's yeah. not City of old. And like oddly, and I, I, I'm not suggesting for one second that he's his goals have dried up. Uh, he's just not scoring at the rate that he was before the World Cup. But even Haaland doesn't look like the player that he was. He sort of snatched mm. at a chance against Chelsea there that 10 times out of 10 before the World Cup goes into the back of the net. I, I, maybe, uh, maybe I'm trying to offer you faint hope here, but have you, um, what's your sense yeah. of City? Well, there's no better opportunity to get your season back on track if you're Haaland than banging in a goal or two yeah. at Old Trafford tomorrow because he, you know, he he clearly that's the that's the game he wants to score in, and he said that when he signed. He said that before he kicked the ball for City, he was asked what what teams he looking forward most to playing, and that's United because of what happened obviously with his dad, etc., etc. There's history there, so that boy will be fired up. Now he's coming up against the butcher of Amsterdam. He's going to come up against. Uh, Martinez, who's, who's who will be up to about just past his hip, I'd say, but I wouldn't fancy playing against Martinez. Uh, Martinez is fired up. He came on as a cameo the other night, played well again, even you know for a, a short period of time that he was on. Um, you look, obviously, every manager goes into a game against City go and, and asks the question, how do you, how do we deal with Haaland? And then every manager will say, you know, it's not just Haaland. There's 10 other players in the pitch. We have to... It's about systems. Uh, I think Ten Hag will have a system. Uh, I think we'll press. I think we'll be happy enough to sit in and then he'll look for pace on the counter-attack with Rashford, with uh, Bruno, with, you know, whoever he has, if he has Anthony out there. Anthony's a bit worrying me now a bit at the minute, but that's another conversation. So it's not just about keeping Haaland quiet, it's it's keeping that attack quiet. So I think it's going to be a cracking game. I don't think it'll be nil-nil, that's for sure. Which are Cue other, the nil-nil draw. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. No chance. With your other hat on, have you, um, <laughs> did you enjoy the uh, Banshees of Inish Aaron success and the reaction over the last few days? Or were you sitting there thinking, oh, put me in, coach. Put me in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lord, you know, I, I I put my hand up and say I haven't seen the movie yet. Um, but you know, obviously, it, it's it's incredibly good for the Irish film industry when a movie like that does what it does on the international stage. It's done the Golden Globes. It'll probably roll through the Baptist now as well, and then into the Oscars. It will do the Irish film industry absolutely no harm at all. Now. It's very busy at the moment, thank God. There's quite a lot of stuff filming in and around Ardmore and other studio spaces around the country. Up north, I'm currently currently filming up in Belfast uh, since last October. There's a lot happening here. And things like that, things like an international success, just reminds people, yes, we're here, and also we have cracking tax breaks. If you want to come and spend your dollars here and make your movie. (laughs) We're open for business. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's the uh, Civic Theatre in Tala on Sunday. It's the Red Devils Roadshow, and um, you've put up... Uh, details of that in your social accounts we've retweeted that so if people are looking for just head over and check that out and also I need to mention by contract of course your podcast yeah. with the irrepressible uh, I don't know what exactly uh, the uh, moniker he should have there but Aiden Power yeah. as well uh, go did let's, he let's. tell you to say irrepressible he did yeah he just texted me there and yeah. said listen well, yeah, what's, what's the best just, what's the be best honest, thing to come up with Adrian he didn't text you he's not up yet let's <laughs> ah, be honest good point, good point. <laughs> Simon thanks a million pleasure as always a pleasure have a great day guys Cheers. thanks a lot Simon Devaney on the line there uh, it just it's certainly a derby that you're sort of thinking 
like anything it's not going to be repeated what happened in October no uh, but anything could happen set up very nicely yeah I think with United Foreman because City have lost a couple but look City are a wounded animal uh, I think the Southampton result maybe could be a dangerous thing for United you know City lose a midweek will, will be the, the firework up the ass that maybe they needed and Pep Guardiola sometimes needs a result like that to, to really kick the team back into gear so yeah I, I, look I think I agree with Simon it's not going to be a goalless draw I'd be, I'd be shocked if it was a goalless draw mm. um, so I expect goals United are bang up for this game as well and I just can't as, he's, as uh, Simon says Martinez up against Haaland is going to be, be belter, incredible yeah. so yeah game to look forward to um, Shifty Lad says good job Kilmacud aren't in the Talton Cup uh, Kathleen this is a conversation earlier on Sligo wouldn't have a hope um, we'll, yeah. we'll, uh, we'll leave that there we are going to talk some tennis we're going to talk about uh, Breakpoint uh, back after these OTB AM on OTB Sports Radio, Ireland's first and only sports radio station. The Koi Gig Pod on OTB Sports. I've had to basically say to her, if I can't get childcare, I'll not be coming to train in. If a Sunday was to come and obviously if Ivan was at work or whatever and I couldn't get childcare, then I'm just, I can't even play that game. That's, it's mad to think of really, it seems kind of archaic. It actually hasn't progressed at all. Keep up to date with all the WSL action every Tuesday and subscribe to the feed in the OTB Sports up now a great experience playing the National League and, and the level of it these days is incredible like you know yeah you're I'd, in a good position to probably look at how far it has developed then absolutely over the last decade. you know and I've lots of friends who are still playing in the league there now and like my friend Sinead Taylor captains uh, Bohemians this year and like even to see Shamrock Rovers have a team again is incredible and um, Shells obviously have been class the last few years and uh, oh no Oh, come on, come on, come on, come on. This is it. Oh, goal. What, oh, what a goal. <laughs> Off the head of the keeper. Oh, my keeper. I don't know why he didn't use his hands in that instance, to be honest. Oh, magic. I need a little bit of luck. Look I need, a, what I need a little bit of luck. And finally, I've got it. OTB AM. With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. Couldn't just see who was top of the leaderboard there, and I couldn't just. It was just. You didn't see who was top. Um, humble brag here, is it? That was a clip there, uh, Hannah Turrell with Nathan. The OTB Games Room, a partnership with Virgin Media, bring your A game with 99.9% broadband reliability. And Hannah was the latest to take on the uh, self appointed OTB uh, FIFA champ, Nathan Murphy, and self appointed and totally inaccurate, it must be said. Um, but that is that. It's uh, 25 to 10. A reminder, of course, that OTBM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. And here's what's coming up on OTB Sports Radio over the course of today. Half past 10, uh, the football kickoff will be live, uh, previewing the football for the weekend. Uh, one o'clock, OTB Gold, Emmanuel Petit, John Caulfield at three. South Dublin's Mount Rushmore at uh, four o'clock. And six is the Life and Times of Johnny Caban. And then 7 o'clock will be Johnny Ward in the hot seat to take you into the weekend. He's also hosting a crappy quiz at some point this morning. So um, that'll be a roller coaster ride. <laughs> absolutely no doubt about it. You can follow OTB across all of our social channels. Subscribe to the OTB Podcast Network for all the latest and best in sports content. We're back on Monday morning with our performance rankings. We're going to be also joined by Daniel Harris after the Manchester Derby. Quinny will give him a bit more time to talk all things rugby. And Jenny Claffey on the... Uh, Tennis. Now we're going to hear from uh, producers uh, James Gay Reese and the showrunner Carrie Leah as well, whose latest show, Breakpoint, dropped on Netflix this morning. OTB AM. All right, a brand new Netflix docuseries. It puts the uh, spotlight on tennis this time, has uh, just been uh, just dropped. 
is the official expression on uh, Netflix this morning. Breakpoint, it's called. Delighted to say a couple of people who are uh, hugely responsible for putting it together. Producer James Gay Reese and showrunner Carrie Leah join us on the line now. Good morning to you both. Thanks a million for jumping on. Morning. How are you doing? Nice to be here. Good, thanks. You you um, guys are uh, responsible for this uh, craze that's gripping the world at the minute around uh, lifting the lid, uh, pulling back the curtain from from these sports. Uh, you were behind Drive to Survive as well. Yes, yeah, we were. We've uh, been making that show now for five years, which is amazing. And um, I suppose it's just had such a transformative effect on that sport that it's led to lots of other people coming knocking on the door, which is very nice. And uh, so, yeah, was, when obviously tennis became a possibility, we jumped on it because um, we're all tennis fans and it's such a fascinating world, which was, uh, you know, we felt that there was a lot of untold story within it that we'd like to shine a light on. And so it proved. There was no reluctance to when you've created something so amazing that uh, like no pressure when you uh, when you wander into another sport. It's totally different, honestly. Each sport's obviously massively different. I mean, we're doing a few of these at the moment and the, the experience is different every time. And um, tennis is literally could not be more diametrically opposed to, you know, the, to Formula One. If it tried, you know, it's an individual sport in the truest sense of the word. There are no caddies even, you know, there's nobody in your corner. There's no teams rounding you in the sense of a Formula One team. And, you know, it's just a completely different mental and physical activity with different bandwidth, different profiles. So, no, it felt like a totally different exercise. And it was, uh, it's been an absolute hoot, actually, to get under the skin of it all. In terms of the, the starting out point, were you guys like F1 nuts? And then that's how you came to that? Because I know obviously you were behind Senna as well, uh, James. Was that the way you came into this or did you reverse into it in some other way? Well, this sort of uh, Formula Generally one. into the, 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 the genre, I suppose. No, no, it just it was started off with Senna, obviously, um, and then obviously we made films like Maradona as well, and uh, we've made a, a few things in the sports space from about Stephen Gerrard called uh, Make a Stream, and then it's just fortuitous. I was just at an event and bumped into the Red Bull team, and then discussed uh, doing a show around Formula One, and then you know became Drive to Survive, and then as I said, the phone started ringing. So no, it was just just a you know it was like most things in life, it wasn't designed. It was just a sort of a sequence of events. Harry, what is the challenge of approaching players who have just suffered a humiliation on court? I'm thinking episode three, Maria Sakkari, biggest final of her life, Indian Wells, loses to world number one, Iga Sviantek, but doesn't just lose, is annihilated. She is fuming afterwards, but yes, you capture the footage. We're there with her. How difficult was that to approach someone who at that moment is probably so volatile because they're so angry with themselves? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. It's um, you put a lot of a lot of work, a lot of groundwork well before that time. So, you know, we sit down or, or James and Paul you know, sit down with people initially to talk to them about filming. But then, you know, you talk, have a long time where you talk about about filming and about what story we want to tell of them, what's important for them to get across. And then it's really crucial that we say, listen, we're here, win or lose. We need to be here, whether you win or you lose. And and we want to show that. And the chances are at a slam, 128 players come in and 127 lose. So the chances are, you know, we are going to be filming loss at some point, you know, unless it's the big one. Right. And so we talk about that. They were very keen that we saw both sides. It was really important to them that they they felt like it was time for people to be honest about what was really going on behind the scenes. But um, I think the most important thing is that the players all knew. We told them the second it gets to be too much and you want us to put the phone, the camera down, you look at us, give us a nod and we put it down. 
we we work together and there's a layer of trust there that really is really really important and actually quite incredibly i think that happened only one time and well, it, it wasn't that. even yeah, I was going yeah. to ask that happened. Yeah, it happened only it happened only one time, and uh, and I was there, and I remember it well. And 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 it wasn't a story that we were particularly you know was going to be big for us. It's not you know, the film, but um, but yeah, no, because the trust was so good by that point. So I think everyone knew that you know we were on, we weren't there to embarrass them. We were there to tell their story. Who was it? It was on Jabour in the oh. uh, first round. We were, I'll tell you, we were actually uh, doing a practice run because she had just won Madrid and made it to the finals of Rome. And we were doing a practice run of uh, with our team uh, to do a slam. It was our A lot of our team was their first slam. And we were, so we knew Ons really well. We're very close to Ons and love Ons. And uh, we thought, okay, well, we'll we'll just walk through what it's like to do a, a round, first round. and um, And she lost. And, and and it wasn't what anyone was expecting. And she wasn't, you know, and and um and they let us film at the, you know, she was very upset. And um and then they just looked at us and gave us a nod and it was like, you know, it's fine. But we we weren't there to, you know, we weren't there to call her out or anything and and we understood. So it's fine. I tell you what, just... sorry, Adrian, go ahead. Go on, Colin, go ahead. No, go I was on. gonna say, James, like it's not just entertaining, but you're very brave. Like episode two, Matteo Berrettini, Alia Tamjanovic, who at the time were a couple. They're no longer a couple, but they were going out at the time. They're both competing at the Australian Open. They have wildly different experiences at the Australian Open, but they're sharing this hotel room. And there's one scene where there's a discussion about their morning plans, let's say. And it's the next morning. It's like, well, I'm going for this interview. And Matteo's saying, well, I'm still in the tournament. I need my sleep. You know, how were you able to get that access, stay there, and yet kind of be that fly in the wall and let them be themselves. How, in, that, in that particular instance, that was fascinating, that scene. I mean, Karen can speak to this better because she's on the ground a lot more than I was. So, um, I mean, I, I think with Matteo and Isla, they're actually incredibly natural people. Incred- like what you see is what you get. Like they're not different when you put the camera down. They are like that normally. And then they're like that when you put the camera down. So I think... You know the team got lucky because they are they're very open kind of people, and they you know I think to my mind that story is really i love I find that story really fascinating because everyone always focuses on the top ten players, but no one ever thinks about the thousands of people that are also trying to come up and I think that's what was to me really interesting about Isla's story is it's so as a a story about someone who's trying to get in there, but it's it's really hard you know and and so hopefully we're able to show that. Are we mispronouncing your name? Carrie. No, don't worry. Like the county. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Very good. 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 Uh, good. You know your audience. <laughs> don't worry. And I'm going to apologize now because I've done it a few times already and I'll, I'll apologize for doing it again, but I'm going to reference Drive to Survive again. Did Did you find that um, having created that beast and the fact that it took over the world and everybody was watching it, that suddenly when you were talking to players, there was a slightly different dynamic in that people understood this is what's involved. So when it comes to losing and the fireworks kick off, we will be there. And, and so it wasn't like that there was no uh, lack of understanding about what might be involved almost. No, I don't think so. As you say, listen, a lot of athletes have watched that show because I think it had a certain sort of profile. So, you know, people are pretty smart these days. They know that these things don't happen by themselves and, you know, and you've got to be in and amongst it and you've got to basically, as Carrie said, you know, you know, film the, the good stuff alongside the bad stuff. And I think that, um, no, I think, listen, it's just a... You know, there's no real magic to this process. People think there is, but there isn't. But you basically just have to earn their trust. And then, you know, 
basically hope that you're, you know, you kind of design the right kind of luck because you've got to be in the right place at the right time. And, you know, you place a number of bets and they don't all come off, right? And so if you're smart, more come off than don't. And then, you know, you just kind of, you know, you develop those relationships and the trust increases all the time. And you'll see in the second half of the series, you know, the relationships get deeper. Um, the access gets better and better and better all the way through, which is always the same way on these shows. And then you can, you know, you start to find that emotional truth in the show and they know when you're in that space and you know, when you're in that space and that's when the kind of like the really good stuff happens. And um, it's very hard to get there though. And, you know, at the end of the day, all these people are professional athletes who actually have to focus on being an athlete, not really being on a TV star. And so, um, you know, it's, you're walking a line all the time. Do they, do, have they all signed up? Do every player sign up to be involved or is it as always you're trying to navigate around some uh personalities who just aren't into it no there's hundreds of players aren't there so you can't do all of them so we sat down with the slams and the atp and the wta and just got the list out and said who's who's who because we don't you know we're not tennis people and they we had a like a long list and then it got shorter and shorter and shorter then you start to meet people and some say yeah i'm all in let's go for it and then some say i don't fancy it you know it's just Mm. inevitable um and but if it has these shows have a way of finding their natural level you know you'll you end up engaging with the people you're meant to engage with if you see what i mean you can't force people to do something they don't yeah. want to do. At that <laughs> side, were their names not on the list that you wanted to be on it? There's always a few, but not in a kind of uh, debilitating way, no. Yeah. I, one other one for me, because I know Colin was itching to get in, and this is very much his specialist topic, um, was the conversation around Nick Kyrgios being episode one, a fairly brief one. <laughs> Joe, I, uh... I can't remember, but yes, it was long and brief, I think. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think, um, you know, it's tricky because we had three episodes, the first three episodes. Have you seen them all? I've seen one and a half episodes. Okay. I've seen much more more, uh, inroads than I have, yeah. Well, I'll tell you, because episode three is uh, one of our favorite episodes where um, Taylor Fritz, who no one expected to do well, you know, goes and and the end, well, I don't want to give it away, but he does something fantastic in that episode and it's very exciting. And so, you know, that's a great episode Matteo Berrettini is a fantastic, you know, it does uh, incredibly well at the Australian Open. So to be honest with you, internally, there was a lot of talk about, we have three fantastic potential episodes that could be the first one, and everyone had their favourite, but in the end, it was actually Netflix's decision. Really? Yeah, because Kyrgios has episode one to himself, and that's not the case for the following four. So Netflix felt that strongly about Kyrgios. I mean, um, like, for me... Kyrgios works out as about the seventh most famous tennis player in the world. So you have Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, Murray, Serena and Osaka. And then comes Kyrgios. So was it a case, maybe for you, James, that Kyrgios was the, the most famous left over, so we had to go first? Or are we just talking about a generational personality? No, 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 no. It's purely a strength of the narrative. I mean, obviously, he is, you know, he's a noisy character, so it's a, it's a good way to open the show because he is talked about, as you say, but... But also, you know, he's got one of the. He's got a very interesting story, and it, and we, we we pick that up in the second part of the show as well. We go deeper into him and explain, you know, try to get under his skin a little bit and work out what's really going on there. So, um, no, he's just listened. You know, he gave, gave us great access, and he's a great hook. But you know, they they've all got good stories, and like Carrie said, it was. A, I mean, honestly, at certain points in time, we were dedicated to another episode. Then it was a different point. You know, there was a different starting point. So it wasn't always designed to be around him. What really strikes me is it's such a lonely sport. Like it's such a lonely sport. Really? And and I like 
I suppose I do glamorize it. I'm such a fan of tennis. And so many people are that it seems so fantastic. Imagine with, winning at Wimbledon or the other three Grand Slams and getting all this money and fame and fortune. But geez, for the vast majority of of players, it's such a grind. And there's a, a scene with Tomjanovic and, and just her mental health. It, it's so apparent. You know, people know about it with Kyrgios, but with Tomjanovic especially. Who is this documentary for? I think we it was really important to us that we made a documentary that was you know going to speak to a vast majority of people and not you didn't have to know anything about tennis to enjoy it I think I'll, hopefully a lot of the stories like the, especially the one that you're talking about when Tomlanovich uh, Isla loses um it's about you know how it feels you know I think everyone can knows what it feels like to go out there and try really hard and fail and fail badly and 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 how difficult and disappointing it is and embarrassing and on all of those things. And so we wanted to tell stories that were true to people, no matter what, you know, no matter if you uh, knew about tennis or not, and hopefully the tennis fans will love it. I'm sure they won't like some of the explainers, you know, <laughs> because uh, we explain, you know, basic things and, and we have to do that because mo- the truth is the majority of people, we wanted to make something that everyone could enjoy, whether you were a tennis fan or not. I have a theory though, as well, that because, most people at some point in their life have tried to play tennis and picked up a tennis racket and like me failed miserably to be any good at it. But you can sort of relate to somebody putting a forehand into the net. Do you know what I mean? No matter how good you are. So I think actually like very few people are ever going to get into a Formula One car, which is why that show appeals to people in a different way. But I think this show could appeal to a lot of people because you'll be like, I know that feeling. I know what it's like to hit a double fall. And even though nobody goes to shit when I hit a double fall, and it can be literally a life-changing event when Nick Kyrgios does it in a Wimbledon final, you know how he feels because we've all done it. Do you know what I mean? And I think there's something in that that should really have some traction with people. I mean, that's obviously, I'm, I'm hoping that that's the case, but I, can, I, would, I could believe that could be the case. Well, one of the more relatable quotes is I think from Sakri again, when she's on the bike after Indian Wells final, and she says, in tennis, you have to get used to losing because you're going to lose more than you win unless you're the big three. And I was thinking, wow, like depending on the kind of day you've just had yourself, it's like, well, that that is extremely relatable. Now, look, between us, just, just between us, who was your favourite player to work with? We loved them all, didn't we, Joe? Ah, no. Come on. Come on. I have a stuff for Isla. I think Isla's just a brilliant character and she's got a brilliant story in the second half of the show as well. So she has an amazing uh, journey and curve. So she was great. And Jensen, she gave us a lot of her time as well. So I have a soft spot for Isla's dad. I'm just going to be straight up about that. <laughs> he's no, not, he's, you'll see, see, what, you'll see what I mean. <laughs> um, the, I, James, you're involved in the new golf documentary. Yeah. Yeah. The, I was, I was only just thinking about it as we were chatting. I mean, you know, the uh, uh, good fortune slash good planning you know, in the one of the most recent Drive Survive series with Abu Dhabi, you have Djokovic and the whole COVID stuff in uh, in the tennis. And lo and behold, live golf lands onto your plate. You must. I mean, I know there was a lot of uh, hand wringing amongst the tour and stuff, but I mean, you must have been. That was a gift from the gods. I know we were panicking though because we were like, "Hang on!" So basically, every player we're featuring is going to live, and this is a show about the PGA. So. <laughs> Does that mean that we can't have any of those players in the series? So there were some quite anxious times. But yeah, no, what can I tell you? We're um we're lucky producers. We do seem to be sometimes in the right place at the right time. And listen, we all need a bit of luck, don't we? So you know. Yeah, but you have to be there to get the luck. Yeah. Are there more uh where are the better characters, golf, Formula One, or tennis? 
Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> it's so different. <laughs> it's so different, honestly. When you see the golf show as well, that's like a totally different beast all, all together as well. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't feel right. like part of the same. So they're honestly, they're all my children. Love them all. Um, you know, I have a favorite, but I'm not going to say who it is. We are, we all have favorite kids. That's, that's I, the name. I knew you had a favorite, James, by the way, you're answering that question. <laughs> you have to come out again and tell us. After all, well, three, next time. That's um, a promise, is that after all three air, you have to come on and tell us. <laughs> yeah, we've got another two which are about to uh about to hit the hit hit the script or hit their rim production so you know after that the other two have dropped as well then we can have a conversation Chat. Yeah. one phone. last one one last one for both of you what's your favorite uh flying the wall documentary of all time be it sport non-sport fucking hell that's a big question Sorry. <laughs> um favorite uh, time um, um, I'm going to be very boring and uh, you might not have seen it, but there was a series called Exodus, which, um, which was on BBC Two, which is about um, about the Syrian refugees trying to come to the UK. Wow. That was well, pretty I'm amazing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Go on. Me? You had another, you had another moment of, inspire, of inspiration there, Carrie, that you were... Uh, yeah, you were thinking of another. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. But yeah, that's that <laughs> one. Yeah. James. Senna. No, I'm joking. Senna <laughs> is a good show. It's pretty good. Honestly, my brain's gone, so I can't give you anything inspiring. Well, uh, well, when we have you on the next time I come, said we'll um, we'll definitely come back to that one. Um, as I said, it's dropped on Netflix as of this morning. It's uh, it's a great show. Um, it's called Breakpoint, and I'd like to say that a couple of people who are really responsible for putting it together: showrunner Carrie Leah and producer James Gary. Thanks, William, for jumping on. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.